283 coming up this weekend and I'm gonna make some gutsy previews. So let's get the body work going. Oh, let's get into it. It's time for Fight Night Picks with your host, Frank and Matt Allen. Just like that, we're back with Fight Night Picks getting set for UFC 283 with Fight Night Picks as always. One half of your host to do Craig Allen. Twitter and Instagram at Craig Allen FNP. With me to my left, to your right, respective socials, Matt Allen FNP. And last weekend, you had Strickland, Imavov. We had a great weekend on that one with Fight Night Picks. But we're looking to up our game, getting set for the first pay-per-view of the year. The return down to Brazil. The last card that the UFC had in Brazil was that weird card in Brazil. Like the, the world shut down. With Kevin Lee taking on Charles Oliveira. No media, then no fans. And then, yeah, the world kind of shut down. So a very, very interesting one. Two title fights up at the top. The co-main event. The quadrilogy is what they're calling it. I mean, fight. already one, one, and one between Figueredo and Moreno. Two fight of the nights, and in the middle, sandwich to Devison Figueredo performance of the night win. It should be a great one there. And in the main event, they didn't like Blahovich versus Ankalaya, <sighs> the main event of UFC 282. Right after the fight ends, a press conference, Dana White's mad. He's tomato can red, and he comes out and says. Teixeira versus Hill is going to be for the title. They made it on short notice. And for Jamal Hill, he was getting set for a fight with Anthony Smith. Smith now has to sit on the sidelines. He's helping him out, though, which is a really fun story, actually, and, going into that And one. we get this title fight right here. Samat, I know there's a lot of fun fights for everyone. There's six rookies on this card making their UFC debuts two second times out. And every single fight has a Brazilian fighter in it. There's even two fights where it's Brazil against Brazil violence. I know you're excited about this oh, one. Yeah. People might not be too hot on it, but it's one of those fight night pick specials with a lot of uh, a lot of young fighters. In I think this is a pay-per-view that has a little bit for everything. And A, you know the Brazilian crowd loves their fighters. And that always makes the atmosphere a lot more fun. Like, I'm a big believer in, hey, fight nights, pay-per-views, everything's way better outside of the Apex. And I think we can all agree on that much. So I am expecting the atmosphere to be absolutely insane for this whole entire card. But like you said, a lot of prospects have the opportunity to really showcase their skills and jump onto the main scene. We talked about Javid Basharat last weekend. He is one half of the Basharat brothers. We have another brother duo fighting this weekend in the Bonfims. I know we were both very impressed by those young uh, fighters, and they have really difficult tests, too, in their UFC debuts, and I think that just speaks to how skilled a lot of these fighters making their debuts are. We want to hear from you guys, so make sure you let us know down below in the comment section. You know what time it is. It's time for the Fight of the Night screen. Let us know down below in the comment section who you've got. It's time for the Fight of the Night with Fight Night Picks. So as I said, two fight of the nights already in the trilogy. The other fight was a performance bonus for Figueredo, but these two guys going at it, real interesting in terms of where their camps have taken place because for Figueredo, he really got going at Fight Ready MMA. Sorry. Now for this fight, he's getting ready at Team Academia Figueredo, his home gym. And for Brandon Moreno, a mix and mash, a little bit of Fortis MMA with Saif Saud, a little bit of Entram gym training in Vegas for Moreno. I'm really hyped up for this fight. I think it's going to be great. I could watch the these guys fight 15 times. Like, I don't really care about the results of their previous fights. Their styles just make for a fight of the night, fight of the year type contender. Figueredo has insane punching power that we have really never seen at this weight class. And Brandon Moreno is just that jack of all trades. He can do a little bit of everything. We've seen his boxing be showcased in their fights. We've seen some of the jujitsu. I just think that no matter how you stack it up, be it 125, we might even see this at 135 in the future if Figueredo does end up moving up after this and if Moreno does follow him at some point. So, this is just one of those few fights and one of the rare matchups where no 
matter how many times I see it, I'm still going to be excited to watch it again. And to make a second choice, there's 15 total fights, so it's hard to kind of go wrong, but at the same time, you have a lot of debuting fighters, and I think there's going to be a propensity for finishes. And if you look at it for Gregory Rodriguez, he got a fight of the night bonus in a two-round fight against Jun Young Park. And in that one, it was absolute madness. Take on Bruno Ferreira, and this guy, I mean, his nickname's The Hulk. And Hulk smashes. And I mean, this guy absolutely gets it. He trains out of Evolu Sao Tai, the gym that Bruno Silva also trains out of. Among others, these guys are absolute finishers. And the man on the right-hand side of the screen is taking this one on short notice. So Dangerous I think, fight. again, this is going to be one of those ones that... When it's over, you're going to be excited about it. You can't believe what happened. Gregory Rodriguez is a really interesting fighter because he fights to the level of his competition, it seems. And that could be for better or for worse in some categories. Like, he's one of these guys who he could fight a box full of pool noodles. Probably going to be fight of the night type stuff. So I don't care who Gregory Rodriguez is ever fighting. I think he has enough body of work at this point to justify that. He deserves to be on these fight of the night screens. And I really do think Bruno is going to bring the best out of him. This is one of those fights where if we do get them meeting in the middle... We're going to be talking about this for weeks on end, so I think it should be an incredible fight. It's a big opportunity for Bruno, too, because Gregory Rodriguez is one of the hotter, unranked middleweights, I would say, so this is a really big chance for both guys. He was scheduled for Brad Tavares, he draws. A good one. It's me, Bruno. Should be a great fight. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have in the fight of the night screen. So, rookie debuts out of Bruno Ferreira, Daniel Marcos, Luan Lacerda. You also have, who else? Ishmael Bonfin. Gabriel Bonfin, you have, uh, what, Mount Costa. There's so many debuting fighters on this card. Second time's out for Simon Oliveira and Ihor Pizzeria, who's taking on the legend Pride MMA's own Shogun Hu. And I saw a tweet out there today by Andy Hickey that said that there's only three remaining Pride fighters on the UFC roster. Can you guess them? Well, Shogun, of course. Well, Shogun's so the other one of them. two. I'm trying to think of really old. Uh, Andre Arlovsky, maybe? Did no. he ever fight there? Robbie really? Lawler and Nick Diaz are the other two. So, uh, yeah, yeah. a couple of guys hammering wow. it out with pride, still in the UFC. But, Matt, this is one of those cards, again, like we said, two title fights up at the top. You've got a former title challenger taking on the winningest welterweight in the world. Well, in the UFC's world. Neil Magny taking on Gilbert Burns. Andrade against Murphy. Paul Craig taking on Johnny Walker. Also on the main card. Matt, I know a lot of people they were kind of thinking like, hey, why aren't we talking about the odds as much on the show last week? But I mean, my goodness, like during the break, watching hockey, watching basketball, watching football, all anybody talks about now is the odds and it's completely boring. And it takes us a ton of time on our show to talk about it. We cut out 45 minutes last week by getting rid of that and a little bit of the filler here and there. Thought people were really going to enjoy that. But we're going to keep rolling like that. We're going to have fun as the year rolls on. We're going to try and make this a little bit more fight night picks like as we roll forward, Matt. I know you're excited, like I said, about this card, about the fights that we have, and about a lot of these marquee prospects that are going to try and make a name in Brazil this week. Yeah, like I said earlier on, this card really does have a little bit for everything. Glover Teixeira could be half these fighters' dad, and he's the one who's at the top of it. So this should be an incredible fight or fight card, and I'm really excited for the main event. I know Jamal Hill and Glover Teixeira was kind of thrown together on short notice, but this was a matchup that was probably going to happen sooner rather than later, especially if you think Jamal Hill does have kind of title aspirations at some point. You're going to have to fight Glover because he's probably the toughest 42-year-old on planet Earth. 43. Uh, 43, sorry. So that's probably an even shorter list at this point. So I'm really excited for the main event, and especially the co-main event. Like I said, Brandon Moreno, Devin Figueredo, give it to me. 
I could watch them fight for a 30th time in, like, Bellator, and I would still be here to get excited about it. So As I think it's a great card. We make moves and start grooves into 2023. We're throwing these out there to you early on, and we're going to break them down on our Instagram stories. It's at Fight Night Picks. You can find us there. The polls are up right now, so you can let us know. Well, you can let us know as we tape this on Sunday night, anticlimactic after the fact. But we're definitely going to reference that, so make sure you follow along. At Fight Night Picks, we have question mark kicks two hours live before the prelims here on the channel to break down the entire card once more get that after look during the week and we get to look at the wins as well and it is of course a big time pay-per-view card we have the sidekick here on the channel as well during that main card so you're not going to want to miss any of the action keep it locked in with fight night picks we always say let's, let's get, get into, into it, it. fight on the card from UFC 283. Really looking forward to this one. Matt's got the Raptors hoodie on right now. Oh lord, I'm the rookie and the vet. Matt, we have a couple of guys looking for their yeah. first UFC win. Simon Oliveira, the vet in this case. He took on Tony Gravely in his UFC debut and he did not win that fight. He's taking on a fellow Dana White's contender series fighter in Daniel Marcos, the Peruvian champion from an organization called 300 Spartan. Never heard of it before. I got ready for his fight on Contender it's Series. It's so mid-2000s to call your MMA promotion that. And for Daniel Marcos, that was kind of the thing. He had taken almost a three-year layoff between being the 300 Spartan champion, Gerard Butler would be amped about that, to fighting on Contender Series. Looked really good in his fight against Brandon Lewis this past summer. And if you do break down these guys and their fight styles, they're interesting guys for the 135-pound division because... At what, 18 of 4 and 13 and 0, they're not really prospects. They're also 29 and 31. You're not really a prospect, but they have a big time opportunity to move forward in this bantamweight division. That's one of the most stacked divisions that they have oh, right now down. in the UFC. But I mean, if you do look at this overall, again, both guys were on contender series, both guys won decisions. But one guy won one a little bit more impressively than the other, albeit the, the level of competition kind of spoke to that. And for Daniel Marcos, he got the big-time win over Brandon Lewis. He dropped him in that fight. Complete he was able to just completely and overall kind of own that one. And he was actually an underdog in the fight, but all three judges scored at 30-27. For Simon Oliveira, he beat the former Combate great Jose Alde. Beat him by split decision. It was kind of one of those ones where you were kind of left wanting more. And then he ends up in the UFC and he takes on a guy like Gravely and it kind of left you wanting more. And we said it kind of getting ready for Oliveira's UFC debut. This is a guy that fought with Pancrase, fought with Jungle Fights, fought all over the place. And what's his biggest thing? Well, he's billed as a Muay Thai fighter. And he is a Thai fighter, but he's kind of sloppy with his defenses. And he's great at jiu-jitsu, but not with takedowns. But he's really good at front chokes. And that's my big issue with a guy like Simon Oliveira. When you look for sort of the kill shots in MMA, just the ways to get finishes, he kind of covers all those bases. He has the long-range attacks, like you had mentioned. I agree. I don't love his defense from the outside. It's almost like his hands are a little bit slow to react sometimes. He doesn't have bad footwork, I would say. But as the fight goes on, if he's defending takedowns, it can put a few question marks in Simon Oliveira's head. But here's the thing, I'll be honest, like, I was really excited for his fight against Gravely. Be it, Gravely is a really difficult fighter to make your UFC debut against, and I'm sure we're going to be saying that sentence quite a few times on this card, because there's a lot of rookies getting really difficult matchups on this card as a total, but for Oliveira... 
he just seemed to be behind a little bit against Gravely, and maybe that was a case of Octagon Traders. You're fighting a guy who has a, had multiple fights in the UFC, so it, it might just be a case of getting that one under you, and then he can go out there and express himself a little bit better in this matchup, but I was really, really impressed by Daniel Marcos' his last time out in Contender Series. I didn't really think he was going to be able to go out there and get the win, and I was impressed by just how well-rounded he seemed to be in that fight, be it with his takedowns, with his hand speed, with the power in his hands too, and that was the nice thing to see out of Marcos. He was able to get the knockdown in that matchup, and I think that if we do see that aggressive version of him, it can be a really dangerous fight for Oliveira, because like I said, Oliveira is a guy who can react to things, and he can be very dangerous if you do make a big mistake, but the problem is, if you're just letting yourself be a reactionary fighter a lot, you can get behind on the scorecards, and then we're just going to have to rely on some kind of Hail Mary finish as it goes on. Not that Oliveira can't do that. He does have those kind of skills. Like, you bring it up. His guillotine is filthy. You do not want to go for a lazy takedown and let this guy get a hold of your neck. He's going to sweep, get on top of you, threaten with the submission. Oliveira has a lot of the nice skills. I just wonder if he has enough filler on the in-between. And I mean, he does have a teammate on this card as well, Josiani Nunez. Both of them out of Astra Fight Team. I don't know if Josiani has, like, a great big Astra Fight team tattoo like Simon Oliveira does but when you leave that gym like can you leave that gym or are you Never. married to it now married to the game if you look at it for Oliveira the big thing out of it you'll see it on the graphic that we have all the finishes but 10 first round finishes four second round finishes one fifth round finish and he's got two decisions and his background is Luta Livre which is very similarly linked to jiu-jitsu in certain respects but fellow Peruvian just like Daniel Marcos you know him the Luta Livre man the leg sweeper it is Claudio Poyas. He is. is the man that's kind of pioneered that of late in the UFC. But out of that Gravely fight, again, all three judges had a 30-27 for Gravely. Again, he throws a lot of hooks from a tie stance, does Simon Oliveira. And he it, the weirdest part about his game is he does the lean back like a Luke Rockhold, but he's five foot four in the Bantamweight division. So really height can be at a disadvantage. Reach can be at a disadvantage. He's actually at a reach advantage in this fight against Marcos. But if we flip it on its head for Marcos, as I said, three-year layoff from the regional scene to contender series and he also uprooted his life in that time he moved to the states last january left his family at home to train at american combat gym and you're probably thinking where have i heard that name well Somewhere. that's the charles rosa gym so marcos moved there had rosa in his corner in that fight his hands look great his boxing look great he's rep by lca sports management which is a kind of a lesser known organization they rep uh, miranda maverick jamie pickett You've got uh, Damon Blackshear. Like, not a lot of big-time marquee athletes. But from Marcos, what I like in his fights, his striking defense is very, very advanced. Like, I really do like how he moves his head. He moves his body. He does a really good job of throwing his right hand a couple of different ways. I'll throw it as an uppercut. I'll throw it as a jab from the southpaw stance as a hook as well. I really do like the fact that he, he does have good moves to get up if he does get taken down. He doesn't have great takedown defense, does Marcos. But what he does is he does have kind of flat feet, and that kind of scares me in some of the yeah. exchanges, especially in this. The other good thing about Marcos, his leg kicks are thunderous, and he really did hurt uh, Lewis in his last fight that way. It's a weird situation, but I could see something happening in this fight that we don't often see, and it is an example that I can think of that is somewhat fresh. Remember how Pantoja tripped up Alex Perez, got on his back, and then choked him out? Oliveira's probably not thinking to himself, let's go for a lazy takedown, force him to give his back, and then go for the clinch that way. But uh, you kind of bring it up. When Marcos is getting up to his feet, he does like to plant a lot on the mat and explode. I could see Oliveira, if he is getting hit with some of those movements, to then take the back and get into a very dominant position that way. I just think this is a very well-matched fight to open up the card, and that's what I hope for both these guys. It is a really difficult fight to predict because, it, again, they're both kind of entry-level, if you will, and they do have bright futures. But if they can have one of those fight-of-the-night fights in the opening fight of the card where... 
Joe Rogan DC and John Hannick are talking about it during the main card. Like, that's what you want for athletes of this level. So, we're gonna have a look at the topology votes on this one. Oliveira is the slight favorite in the fight. Daniel Marcos making his UFC debut. Again, the weird thing with Marcos is he's undefeated as a pro. He's undefeated as an amateur. 6-0 as an amateur. So, he's on a 19-fight win streak. His level of competition on the regional scene, you add it all up. The wins and the losses is 68-31-2. And you might go, hey, that, that is, that sounds really good. But then you go through the fighters that he fought. He fought a guy named Cordova, who at the time was 7-0. Cordova's now 14-13. And if you go down through everybody, it wasn't the greatest level of competition. He did beat Lewis over on Contender Series as an underdog. I'm going to say the top all votes, Matt. Over, under. I'm going to say 70% Oliveira. I think they'll be under. I'll, I think they're close to 50 They're going to be under. 751 total votes, 81% Marcos, 84% by decision for the 19% that I've Oliveira, 53% by decision. At Fight Night Picks over on Instagram, 55% of Oliveira. So Topology, 81% on Marcos, and At Fight Night Picks, 55% of Oliveira. Matt, that makes a pick really interesting. It does, and I thought I was going to be a little bit of a hipster going with Daniel Marcos in this one. Then we look at the Topology votes, and that's not the case whatsoever. But I do think the... His game is going to offer Oliveira a lot of trouble, I think, especially early on. Because if Oliveira is just waiting for things to happen and then him allowed to react off it, he could get hit with big shots. He could get taken down. Now, again, I don't think Marco's going for a lot of takedowns. It's probably the best game plan in a matchup like this. But we brought this up a lot in the Alon Nascimento fight last week. I think if Marcos can get on that in-between, and I know Nascimento looked really good, but still, if Marcos can get in on that in-between to make Oliveira feel uncomfortable, at least threaten a little bit with his pressure, I think that'll open up some of his striking. So, ever so slightly, I'm going to go with Dan Marcos, but it's a very well-matched fight. And, and it could be due to the fact, I agree with you here, that Oliveira, I'm just so down on the performance that he had, making his UFC debut, and not really looking at the fact that he got near the top of the mountain with a lot of smaller promotions in Brazil and, a while and ago too. in South America, but you go through the 5-1-in, and similar with both of these guys, for Oliveira, four years ago, three years ago, three years ago, a year ago with Alde, and then he loses to Gravely almost a year I ago. that was so long ago. Yeah. It feels like it wasn't long ago. A long, long time ago, but I do like the offense and the strike out of Marcos. I think, again, with his stance and the way that he can move around on the feet, I think he can pose a little bit of a challenge to Oliveira. And I know both these guys could be billed as finishers, but I think Marcos has just a little bit more in the way of winning, maybe not the most fun decision. So it's a fun me, fight, though. Like, I'm genuinely really excited for this fight to open up the whole entire card. I know we say that on a lot of these, but like, I genuinely think this could be fight of the night. I'm not saying it's going to be the most skilled fight on the card, but both guys can get hurt. Both guys excel in most areas of mixed martial arts. So I think for those reasons, we're going to get a fun one. Both of us going with Peru's Daniel Marcos and his UFC debut. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have uh, a very evenly skilled fight to kick this card off and in the main event oh my goodness for the light heavyweight belt glover to share versus jamal hill you're gonna want to keep it locked in with fight night picks we always say let's get into it cody stamen was once ranked the 10th bantamweight in the entire world well at least in the ufc at ufc 220 80 was 17-1 the spartan was on top he was taking on aljamain sterling and he got caught in what they call a knee bar, but it looked like a Sula stretch, stretch yeah. which and is a knee bar. Since then, it's been a little bit of a rocky road for the man representing Michigan. And coming up this week at a UFC 283, he'll be taking on the Nova Uniao submission specialist, Luan Lacerda. And guys, I know you're going to say it in the comments section. Let's get it out of the way right now. Luan Lacerda, main training partner of... Jose Aldo, and we've seen him around the corner, we've seen him around the camp, we've seen Dede Pedernaris talk about Luan Lacerda quite a bit, 
And this guy is definitely a very special fighter. A little bit surprising that he's getting a UFC debut against Cody Stamen because if you do have a look at it, it's not necessarily a but why fight, but it's kind of one of those, like Brian Windhorse was talking about the Utah Jazz. This is kind of one of those fights. Like I look at Royce this. O'Neal. Well, and I don't take so much stock into topology rankings all that much, but when you have the number 31 ranked Bantamweight taking on the number 146 ranked Bantamweight, it kind of seems like a mismatch and an so, odd entry into the UFC. We talk about this a lot, how there's some guys in the UFC that you fight, and if you get a win over them, let's say Jim Miller, for instance. Jim Miller is a vet, but he's still skilled enough that he can beat a lot of those good prospects. So when you beat him, it really means good things for your career, and it puts you on a path to where, hey, no more easy fights. Cody Stamen was kind of on that path at a certain point where it was, hey, you're beating the guys you're supposed to beat. I remember him versus Tom Duke and what was a big fight back in the day, and that was, hey, prospect versus prospect. We have a striker versus a grappler. Whoever wins this is going to start getting some of those bigger fish in the division. And for Cody Stamen, that fight was terrible, but he was able to get the win but over Tom Duke and what? That was the only win that Cody Stamen has in the UFC where he's the underdog. Exactly. So that just speaks to the level of competition that Cody Stamen has, has had to be in there with for basically his whole entire career. But Stamen's a weird guy because he has sort of fallen out of that after his three-fight losing streak to where, hey, you can't really say no to anybody now. Like, when the UFC gives you a po an opponent, what do you do? Say no when you're on a three-fight losing streak? But for Stamen, it's never been an issue with skills. It's really just been his opponents. Like, if you're Cody Stamen, everybody in the world knows what you're good at. You're really good at wrestling. You're pretty good cardio, albeit some of the other guys in the division who can work at a very high rate can outwork a guy like Stamen. But for the most part, he has basic striking to work himself into the clinch to take guys down and then rinse and repeat. The problem I have with uh, Lacerda in this matchup is it's kind of like not being Alex Pereira and trying to fight Israel Adesanya being like, hey, what if we struck with him? Like, I don't think going into a fight with Cody Stamen and having submission on the mind, unless you're the Bantamweight champion of the world, like you would said with the crazy Suluev stretch, or Syed Nurmagomedov, who's a pretty darn good grappler in his own right. I just think for Lacerda, there's going to be a couple situations that he might be able to put Stamen in to make him uncomfortable, but I think it's going to be really difficult for him to have sustained levels of success in this match. The, the weird thing is, I agree with you in most part, but for Cody Stamen, this is the craziest part about it. Look at his last five fights and look at the guys that he's lost to. We consider that three-fight losing streak. Lose to Jimmy Rivera. Kind of didn't gas in the third round, but didn't really have that oomph. He's took on... Took on Marab and got out-wrestled, and then he took on Saeed Nurmagomedov, went for a takedown, got caught in a submission. But the last two wins that Cody Stamen has, he beats Brian Kelleher after his brother passes away, and he knocks out Eddie Wineland very early in the first round of their last fight. And Eddie Wineland might be over the hill, yeah, but fair. look at the way that Cody Stamen won his last two fights. By striking. that's yeah. It's just kind of crazy to look at that statement. And the fact that he has definitely upped his skills since he switched from training in Michigan to training at Extreme Couture and working his hands. You are right. But the way that I look at it is, I, I can't believe I'm quoting this guy. Eddie Bravo used to say this about guys who would come to his jiu-jitsu gym. It was, hey, if I have a world-class striker, I'm not telling him to pull guard our first camp together. And I think for Stamen, yes, he has shown those improvements. I still wouldn't be in Cody Stamen's corner telling him to pump the jab and start working the overhands. I, I just, fucking would in this fight. Oh, oh, in this fight, he can. But again, Cody Stamen is not of this level. We've just spent eight minutes talking about how Cody Stamen has fought far better fighters than Lacerda throughout his so, entire career. That's why this is a very surprising matchup. Like, normally, you don't want to give a prospect an absolute steamroller who is a stylistic nightmare for them. Because Lacerda has, let's just be honest, minus striking. He has great grappling, though. A very offensively minded grappler. Someone who won't get held down. And that's what I do want to say. I don't think Lacerda is just going to hold full guard and try to get the lockdown on him and wait for the rep to stand him up. 
If he loses, it's gonna be like on his shield, but in the jiu-jitsu way. Like he's gonna try to create space. He's gonna try to get up to his feet. I just think all that work is going to tire him out as this fight progresses. I mean, for Lacerda, you look at it, he made his pro debut back in 2012. He's got a win in 2015 over Howling Paiva, who was once ranked in the UFC. So that's definitely a good win. But you go down through it and you look at all of the fights. I mean, he fought Paiva with EFC for some reason. Then he took a stretch off from 2018 to 2020. He gets going on and on and on. Now, this fight was announced back in December 6th. That was announced by Alex Bahunin, Sean Strickland's best friend on Twitter. But if you do look at it, I mean, for Lacerda, it kind of seems like, hey... Here you go. Just all of a sudden, he gets to have this fight. And I know he was able to capitalize on the LFA going down to Brazil. He got some of those fights under his belt. But you look at the fights that he's had. And if you like the stretch that I brought up that Stamen had or, or was subject to against Aljamain Sterling, Luan Lacerda was able to do that in one of his recent fights. And he's really, really slippery when it does come down to his grappling on the mat. So I would think, again, if you're taking down or taking on a lockdown grappler and Cody Stamen, Lacerda could definitely have an advantage in the jiu-jitsu. We've seen that from all all of his fights combined but like you said with Lacerda kind of like Simon Oliveira I'm surprised that a Nova Uniao fighter is this negative of a striker because he holds his hands completely out, doesn't move his head, and he gets picked apart at distance in a lot of his fights. He does, but this is my whole thing about Stamen if he does decide to stay on the outside and just try to strike his striking. He does leave himself open. Like, Cody Stamen's not a guy who's going to go in there and just not get hit, like get out all the time. He's going to stay around for the receipt every now and then to quote the great Teddy Atlas, and I just worry that if Stamen does get hand happy, we saw this with Johnny Hendricks years and years ago. A very good wrestler decides, hey, I can strike now, gets off that path a little bit too far, and then never really regains it. I just think for a statement, I think his wrestling is good enough to go in there against a guy like Lacerda. I'm not saying he should play around and try to create a lot of separation, but he's a very heavy fighter in that top position, and I think he's going to make Lacerda work a lot from the bottom. Now, that could open up his striking later on as the fight progresses, because if Lacerda has poor striking defense in the first minute of the first round, at the 14th minute of the third round, I'm sure with the extra fatigue, his hands are going to be even lower. I just think, again, it just comes back to, I don't really care about what you think of Lacerda at this point. This is an awful matchup for him to take in his UFC debut. Like, there's not a lot of fighters who would have to fight, like, Brian Barbarena, for instance, at Walterweight in their debut. Like, this is kind of of that level. Well, I mean, poor Darian Weeks had to. Exactly. It's, it's kind of like Darian Weeks, Brian Barbarena, Alexander Hernandez, Benil Darius. You pass the test, it's great. You fail the test, you get somebody that's closer to your level. We have a look at the topology vote, Matt, in this one. Stamen is a pretty big favorite in the matchup, but when you do consider it, I'm going to say over-under. I doubt it's all that close. I'm going to say over-under 85% steam. I think it'll be over. I'll say in the 90s. Wow. 799 total votes, 53% steam, and 81% by decision for the 47% that have Lacerda, 70% by submission. And again, I think a lot of people are going to be in disagreement. I don't think Stamen's going to mess around on the ground. I know he was. He went to D2. He was in Allendale at Grand Valley State University with his wrestling. And he is such a, a high-caliber wrestler that only struggles against guys like Marab when it comes to the wrestling but when you look at it for Stamen I think the advancements in the boxing and this is where we just disagree I think that can kind of carry him to a win against a guy like Lacerda I just I haven't seen the strike yet of Lacerda in all the fights that I went back and watched I consider Lacerda to be more of the Leo Santos Leonardo Santos version from Nova Uniao than the Jose Aldo that he's trained with all these years 
again, yeah, Lacerda could go on and win six fights in a row after this. It's just, you're making your debut against a guy who was thought of as, like, a potential title challenger at one point. And that's genuinely about what people thought of when they talked about Cody Stamen. He beat other prospects on his way up, which is what you're supposed to do when you want to be the best of those prospects. Fought-ranked fighters, did very well, beat a lot of them, hit the skids and fought three really good fighters, I guess four of them in his last six. So for Stamen, I think he's just kind of taking this to stay busy. Like, I do expect Stamen, his next time out, to probably get a much more difficult matchup. So for this one, I do have Cody Stamen. Hopefully Lacerda can at least go out there and make this competitive. That would be nice to see because we talked about this a lot. The main event that we got last week, and I think I saw you tweet this out too, one of those fights where neither guy is going to gain a lot of stock. Sometimes you have wins where you don't gain a lot of stock. Sometimes you have losses where you do gain a lot of stock. And hopefully for Lacerda, people give Stamen the respect that he deserves and that Lacerda can make this at least an interesting fight. Interesting fight for sure. The topology voters split. Let us know who you have in this matchup. Both of us going with the Spartan. Cody Stamen to get the win. Two title fights up at the top of this card that you're not going to want to miss keep it locked in with fight name picks we always say let's get into it we did a video on this fight back in april of 2021 a full set ago getting set for Josiane nunez taking on infinity Zara Fairn and Matt this is a, a, again a very interesting fight now that original fight was supposed to be at bantamweight this one's now a featherweight a division dominated by a champion and about three other fighters that aren't Norma Dumont and Danielle Wolf. And in this one, it gets very, very interesting when you look into their camps. Astra fight team for Josiane Nunes. And for Zara Farron, she repped a boxing gym out of France for the longest time. But getting set for this fight for the last, what, like half a year, seems like from her Instagram, she's been training at Team Academy of Figueredo. So a really interesting move, Barry. just a life choice there from Zara Farron. But we're going to throw it back to that video because you know what? Most people, they might not even remember that set. So let's throw it on back to the original video for Nunez versus Farron. Taking on France's Zara Farron. And while some people might be familiar with Farron, she came into the UFC with a little bit of fanfare. She was France's first woman in the UFC. And since then, all the fanfare is gone and she's dropping down a weight class. Listen, she lost her debut to Megan Anderson in the big house. It was Marvel Stadium. She got finished in the first round. So she goes out there last year and she fights Canada's Felicia Spencer. And the Canadian was able to withstand the early storm. They struck. They traded. Farron had a little bit of success. And then Felicia Spencer went, well, you have no ground game. I'm taking you down. I'm going to get in mount. I'm going to hammer away at your face. And for Farron, she didn't really have much of an answer. But Felicia Spencer, very heavy on top. Landed some good elbows too. Referee saw enough. For Zara Farron, she's a primary boxer. And she is a little bit heavy on her tippy toes. Like she weighs heavy ahead. She moves ahead quite well. She will throw in combination. But she leaves a lot of weight on her front foot. And listen, she doesn't throw much for kicks. She doesn't really have much of a clinch game from what we've seen in the UFC. But we did see it on the regional scene that her clinch game could be effective. She can use her cardio as a weapon, which I worry about a little bit. She's 34 right now in this weight division. But if Holly Holm can still do it, then hey, who knows what's going to happen. Like I said, she's taking on Brazil's Josiane Nunes. Zara Farron, we've seen her in her two UFC fights. They have not gone her way. And the holes that we did see exposed, it was in the grappling. And now, I don't think Josiane Nunes is going to go out shooting double legs or wearing her wrestling shoes to this fight. So stylistically, I do think entertainment-wise, at least, we should get a very fun fight here. For me... I do think you can somewhat simplify this fight into, can Josiane Nunez get on the inside of Sarah Farron? And I, I don't want to say that's easier said than done, because I do think you can get on the inside of someone like Farron. And the reason I say that is because we've seen fighters, they can close the distance on her. Yes, they've used that distance management, I guess, 
for takedown attempts, but if you get on the inside, you can work her body and to the head. And the interesting thing about Nunez, and you kind of brought it up, stylistically, and at least physically, she is built a lot like Jessica Andrade when Andrade used to fight at 135. Stylistically, might not be as similar, whereas Andrade, she gets a little bit more wild with her techniques. She'll throw hard to the body, hard to the head, whereas Nunez can keep things a lot more technical. For me, if Nunez can stick with low leg kicks and throw overhands to make Farron pay for her single shots, I really do think she can replicate somewhat a somewhat successful gameplay. So in the time that we switched studios, so in the time since we switched studios, Nunez is 2-0 in the UFC. She beat uh who? Ramona Pasquale, dropped her a couple of times. She fought BM Lecky. Well, she knocked her out. So for Nunez, she's been absolutely lighting the world on fire. And she's actually a ranked fighter in the Bantamweight division, even though fights have been all over the place for her. And for Zara Farron, again, she's lost two fights by finish in the UFC. And we haven't really been able to see the boxing and the, the tie style that she was able to employ on the regional scene before coming into the UFC. You're going to find it weird that I have their weigh-ins from their last fights on the graphic. 145.5 for Nunez, her last time out against Pasquale. That one she moved up in weight to take. And for Farron, I've got it at 147. Why do I have it at 147? Why would I do that? Because in their original fight, back in 2021, Farron weighed 147 Stop. for a fight at Bantamweight, so they decided to scrap the fight. So Zara Farron, first fight, like first time she's weighed in since 2021, Matt. I have Don't no friggin' clue what she's gonna look like in this one. Ah, uh, this is one of those fights where it's like, hey, you both kind of have limited opponents. We want to keep the division alive. Do you want to fight at 145? And that's basically the selling point. Like, Josie Annie Nunes is... Like, the fighter that I describe when I talk about Priscilla Cachoeira, that's who Josie Annie really is. Like, she has that kind of next-level power. It's like, you know the song Warning by Biggie? Yeah. There'd be a lot of slow singing to flower bringing if my burglar alarm starts ringing. That's Josie Annie Nunes. Like, you do not want to mess with this lady. There's a handful of fighters that would just make me jump out of the cage if I saw them across me. And just for Nunes, she's one of a handful of female fighters that you can almost predict a finish is going to come from her fights. And you can't say that a lot of times. I remember we talked at length about how Ketlin versus Raquel Pennington, you know what the result's probably going to be? A controversial split decision. You know what the result was? A controversial split de decision. Wasn't a great fight. Neither fighter really had an argument to win that one. But for Nunes, she goes in there to throw hammers. And yes, it does leave her open to a really talented counter-striker. Those windows are going to be there if she ever fights uh, Amanda Nunes. Because really, if you're fighting at 145, that's all that you're building your career towards. I just think for Nunes, she's shown the ability to go out there and get finishes at the UFC level. And unfortunately for Farron, like you said, it hasn't been the best of runs as of late. And it is surprising to see a fighter coming off to pretty bad losses, if we're being honest, go up against someone who has looked like such a sledgehammer so far in their UFC tenure. Well, and that's the tricky part about it. Farron lost by finish to Megan Anderson, who challenged for the title. Farron lost to Felicia Spencer, who challenged for the title. I don't know what Zara Farron's going to look like, so I would stay away from this. This is definitely a pop and popcorn fight from that respect. Nunez is a pretty big favorite. We have a look at the odds here on Topology. The votes are surprised to us as they are to you, Matt. I'm going to say over, under... 90% Nunez? I'll say over. My over-unders haven't been great. This one, okay, we're, we're a little bit closer. 860 total votes, 95% Nunez, 70% by knockout for the 5% that I've fared, 59% by decision. We'll have a look at Fight Night Picks over on Instagram. 79% going with Nunez. So a lot of people going with Nunez in this one. Again, I just wonder, you got... Farron kind of moving her life for the last half a year, last six months, going to Academia Team Figueredo. She has that big six-inch height, five-inch reach exactly. advantage over Nunez. Nunez is great at crashing distance. She paused those overhands, kind of like an old-style Chuck Liddell from the Southpaw stance. 
but it leaves her wide open to get countered. And again, when you look at it for Farron, it's the knees and it's the boxing combinations. That's a winning way to beat somebody like Nunez. It's just, I haven't seen it from Farron. It's been a long time, and I got to go with the recency out of it and pick Nunez. It just one. feels like for Farron, it takes her a little while to find her own rhythm before she can have success, and Nunez is a difficult fighter to find your rhythm against. She's crashing forward, always making you think about the big shots, so I agree with you. I've also got Nunez. Tough to have a, a lot, a lot of confidence just based off the recency, though. Both of us going with Joe Zanny Nunez to get the win. Matt, a couple of Brazilian finishers in the main event, co-main event. Fighting for titles, Devison Figueiredo, Brandon Moreno, Glover Teixeira taking on Jamal. Hill, you're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with fighting picks. We always say, let's get into it. It's like the Great Pumpkin versus the Vegetable Fun Fest version, I guess, if you're a robot chicken so fan. Confused. Coming up this weekend, very much a who, what, why, when, and how type of fight between Warley Alves and Danish Dynamite Nicholas Dalby. Love the nickname change from him. And a very interesting fight in this welterweight division for sure. Because when you consider for both of these guys, the reason that I open it that way, it just depends on what version we get from Dalby and his fight against what? Jesse Ronson, he gets hit by a punch, gets dropped, gets choked out. In his fight that he had against Daniel Rodriguez, pitter-patter on the outside, neither guy really has a great opportunity to win it. It's a win on Dalby's ledger, but most people thought that Rodriguez won. And if you go down through it for Dalby, since he's been back with the UFC in his second stint, it's kind of been every single fight. His fight against Alex Oliveira, very hot and cold close. His fight his last time out against Claudio Silva, was awful to rewatch. It was a terrible fight. Silva, was an old man. Silva took him down, won the first round, second round, Dalby wins, third round, Silva can't get the takedown, Dalby wins it, but it was a terrible fight. And Dalby didn't look all that great in that one either. He was emotional after he got the win, and rightfully so. But for Warley Alves, I mean, again, on these guys' respective best days, they have wins over, like I said, Dana Rodriguez for Nicholas Dalby and Colby Covington for Warley Alves. And on their worst day, you're losing to, again, Jesse Ronson, Jeremiah Wells. I mean, I like Wells, but still, Alves has had very high highs, low lows, and the same can be said against Dalby. And I know both of us have a hard time trying to predict fights from both of these guys. It's terribly difficult to do because, like you said, there's two versions of both guys. One version can go in there and have competitive fights with pretty much anybody in the division. I'm not going to tell you Warley Alves could beat... I don't know, Kamaru Usman right now. Like, that'd be pretty difficult, but you know what I mean. Like, he's going to make a good account of himself, but that's the thing. When he doesn't, it seems to all go wrong. Like, here's the stat that really stands out to me of Shaquille O'Neal's career. Shaq's one of the greatest players ever. You know, he gets swept seven times in the playoffs. When it goes bad, it goes horrible. And that's kind of the thing for Worley, not that he's on Shaq's level, but when he can't get the takedown, when he's almost unsure of his own striking ability on the outside, that's when Worley can get caught in the mirror a little bit because the thing about Al uh, Alves is it really does, it feels like to me, comes down to confidence. When he's the one moving forward, blasting his kicks, going to the body, going to the head, he's a difficult fighter to deal with. And I like his pressure because he knows how good of a grappler he is. And we saw in the Colby Covington fight, was able to submit him. What Worley Alves does is he forces shots out of his opponent opponent. He's going to strike with you. You're going to get uncomfortable, shoot for a bad takedown. And then as a result from that poor takedown, Alves is a wizard on the mat. I just don't know. This fight could either be like fight of the night or it could be terrible because I think there's a world where Dalby goes in there, uses a lot of clinch work, which I know might not sound like the most aesthetically pleasing type of fight, but hear me out. Use some of that clinch work, maybe get a trip or Alves even goes for a trip off that. We get some fun scrambles. We might get some fun striking. There's also another world where we get a very low volume version of both guys on the outside. 
I will say, though, if we do get that version out of both guys, I do like Alves's kicks from the outside a little bit more. With Dalby, he is a little bit more of a boxer. He'll throw the leg kick out a little bit, but a lot of his success on the feet is with the elbows, it's with the hands, and I do like Alves's ability to throw some kicks from the outside. Yeah, Dalby in this second kind of run that he's had in the UFC has been kind of like an all-the-way outside striker. He hasn't really crashed the distance all that much in these fights, and again, he had that crazy fight of the year, bloodbath over with Cage Warriors against Ross best. Houston. He had that great fight against Carlo Pedersoli, kind of cut from the same cloth the over there. fight, a lot of people why well, maybe not now, a lot of people remember but at one point, that was a big talking point. And that was one of the draws, or the draw on Nicholas Dalby's ledger. But again, a lot of really, really close fights that could kind of go either way. With Worley Alves, it's like he looks like a world beater, like he did against Munir Lezez. His eyes were laser focused, and he threw those banana tree kicks like an SMXN at AKA Thailand. But he didn't, he, he, well, maybe broke rib, maybe he didn't. He looked great against Lezez in that one. But then in his fight against Wells, he tries to kind of invite the brawl. Wells just runs across the cage, throws a flurry, and drops him. And then in the fight against Randy Brown, he just didn't really look all there. Like, that's the trouble when I try and look at a Worley Alves fight. I mean, he won the Ultimate Fighter Brazil Season 3, which is awesome. I mean, who were the coaches from that season? The Axe Murderer and Chael Sonnen. I can't let you get too close. One of the great sound bites. But for always in the UFC, high highs, low lows, 8 and 5, and 9 of those 13 fights have ended in a finish. So it, it's kind of hard to try and predict when you go into a fight like this, especially against these high kind of ranked guys or guys to get close to the title. But when you factor it in, again, you look at the odds. Alva is a slight favorite. We have a look at the topology votes, Matt. Surprised us there to you. I'm going to say over under 65% Alvis here. I'll say over. You're going to say over? 830 total votes, 70% Dalby, 85% by decision. For the 30% that have Alvis, 52% by decision, 26% by knockout. That surprises you. A little bit. It really just comes down to... How comfortable are you picking the volatile pick versus the more comfortable pick of the two? Because Dalby is the steadier fighter. Although he doesn't always fight up to his fullest of potentials, when it goes wrong, he's still steady. He's he still defensively sound. He's not going to make such big fight-ending mistakes that are really going to cost him. But the flip side is, if he does stand on the outside and not really do an awful lot in this fight, I do think Alvesh is going to eat him up at kick range. I really do think that those body kicks and even the leg kicks are going to cause trouble for Dalby. And the thing is, if he's thinking about, okay, I got to worry about my leg, I got to worry about my body what if he even goes for a takedown off of one of those kicks because the kicks are starting to bother him i think on the mat alvesh does have a fairly big advantage i know randy brown was able to triangle choke him but again like you had said that was a weird fight please go back and watch it that was not warley at his best whatsoever and hey randy brown's pretty effing good i think we've all realized that at this point too so ever so slightly i guess i'll go with the more volatile of the two the peaks and valley fighter if you will i'll pick morley alvesh but again if you have a different prediction than me i'm not going to say you're crazy because I, I can see a lot of areas where both guys can yeah win. dalby tends to be the more active guy and the commentary always goes to it he does like the wim hof nordic breathing for the entirety of the fight he's always like breathing in breathing out really heavily out through his mouth but that's his thing and he's talked about that in interviews it's kind of like Demiris Magulov when he would blink in his fight so for Nicholas Dalby again could he be the more active guy sure I didn't love what I saw in the fight against Claudio Silva's last time out even though he won and for Warley Alves fighting in Brazil his coach at refit pro fighters I know he's kind of got Laerte and Hani Barcelos there 
Poor Howney, oh, man. That was tough. But a great win for Marner Magomedov. But the head coach out of that gym is the kick master. It's Pedro Hizzo. And I like that form in a matchup like this. So I also have Orly Alves in the fight. But I'm really eager to hear what people are thinking on this one. Because the majority over on Topology are going with Nicholas Dalby to get the win. Whereas at Fight Night Picks on this one, 62% going wow. with Nicholas Dalby to get the win as well. So I guess we're on the opposite side of that one. We're risk takers, Craig. Let us know who you have in the fight. A couple of great title fights up at the top. Yeah. UFC 2 you're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it. Coming up this weekend, the first of the martial artists, Bonfin Brothers, kind of like Toronto's McNamara Brothers in the 80s. The Bonfims are ready to get going. And this is Maheta Ishmael Bonfim. He has a boxing background, as does his brother. And he gets a great opportunity coming off of Dana White's Contender Series to take on Terrence McKinney for T-Rex. He's already 2-1 in the UFC. Knocked out Matt Frivola, who was the hotness last year. He got finished by Drew Dober, who's now ranked in the lightweight division. And wild, wild, fight wild fight. And for McKinney's last time out against Ghost Pepper, Eric Gonzalez, he goes out there and gets a knockout win. Get touched up a little bit before that. But oh boy, did he ever drop him and finish him with the ground and pound. McKinney's been one of those guys, a fan favorite since even before his time oh, yeah. in the UFC. You knew him from Dana White's Contender Series when he took on the sniper, Sean Woodson. And in that fight... McKinney looked amazing, he and he was getting back up off the mat, took his time, had his head down, and ate a flying knee and got finished. He ever. And he had to build, build himself back up. He got finished on the regional scene again, and then the wind started coming for McKinney. And obviously, we know that his life story was crazy. We know that he wrestled at the JUCO and NCAA level as well. But that's that part of his game that not a lot of people talk about. I think it could really help him in a fight like this. But it really is a battle of Bonfim, his great boxing, and Terrence McKinney with his power and his wrestling in a fight like this. I agree 100%. We talked about this a lot. We brought up Punaheli Soriano last weekend, and I know it didn't work out great for him, but he's one of these fighters who, hey, has incredible power, has a wrestling background that might not be spoken about as much as it should, but I remember us talking about this a lot before McKinney fought Eric Ghost Pepper Gonzalez. It was, hey... McKinney might take him down. Like, if he's ever going to do it, Gonzalez is a pretty good striker on the outside. This might be the fight to use your wrestling. And it was nice to see McKinney finally show that wrinkle of his game. We know him for his great power, but it is nice to see just the other skill sets that he does possess. But the thing about McKinney is, and you bring it up, just based off his level of comp uh, competition, it's all over the place. Like, yes, the Drew Dober fight was very competitive. I know it's a first-round uh, finish loss for McKinney, but still, he had Dober hurt and in a lot of trouble, and then Dober was able to just dig really deep and come back like Drew Dober always does. But there's a big difference between Drew Dober, Gonzalez, and I'd say Frivola's in the middle, but even with him, it's kind of hard to tell just where he is at this stage of his career. That's why I think this fight, I know we were kind of hard on uh, Lacerda earlier on in this fight card, fighting Cody Stamen, and a lot of people might look at this as kind of similar to that, you know, a guy making his debut against a much more proven commodity, but for McKinney, he does leave wide open uh, openings when he goes for his big power shots. And yes, it's great to watch. Like, his boxing combinations when he can land them, when he's going to the body, going to the head, landing those long extension straights, they're devastating. But the issue is, and we have seen it a few times now, he leaves himself open on the extension. It's the recoil that I think he does struggle with quite a bit. So when guys can slip his punches from the outside and close that distance, again, McKinney, we talk about this a lot now. It's kind of a curse and a positive to have good reach. Good reach isn't a positive or a negative. It's just a stat and it's up to you on how to use it. Guys who can get on the inside of McKinney can have a little bit of success with their dirty box and clinching up a little bit. And that can be a way where Bonfim can have success. If he can dodge some of those longer range jabs, you know, it was a crazy fight that I thought of uh, leading up to this fight. 
When the Korean zombie fought Hanata Moikano, Hanata Moikano throws a jab, Korean zombie slips to the outside and immediately counters with an overhand. And I that's how Ishmael Bonfim fights. And that's my whole thing. If Terrence McKinney does get lazy with some of his longer range strikes, Bonfim's the type of guy who can really make him pay for and it. And if you do consider it for McKinney, all of his wins are by finish, eight of them by submission. And he does have those wins over Farah Zium where he kind of catches them on a kick, gets them down, and then he finishes them. And against Eric Gonzalez, he was a minus 850 favorite yeah. was McKinney. So level competitions all over the place. But again, he does have wild hands, keeps them very low when he is trying to defend. And again, his left cross is, is really one of his special shots. But when you look at a Frishmail Bonfim, just like his brother Gabriel, he has a record in boxing. 24-3 and three as an amateur, 4-1 and one as a pro. But one of the guys that he beat, like that was from 2016 to 2018, was 5 29 and 1. So it wasn't the greatest level of competition in boxing, but a, a record to have nonetheless. And from Ishmael, as good as he is with his striking, he's very well rounded. And I think Gabriel might be the better of the bomb from brothers, even though Ishmael has some losses. It, it is against better competition. But for Ishmael, what he can do so well is counter and bait you into a lot of those shots back up and he does move his head quite well and then again his left hook is one of his best shots and he looks to land it quite a bit now again could he get caught with the lean back and he gets hit by a big For McKinney sure. shot I bet and I'm sure we're going to hear that from you in the comments and section. that's why we talk about the lean back being a bad defensive he, move like good defensive strikers slip they don't lean he reminds me a lot though of his teammate from Serato MMA in a guy like Vicente Luque kind of waiting baiting keeping his hands up yeah. and then looking to counter strike on that recoil again a thing that I do like out of him is he can also throw his left hand not just as a traditional hook but as a bit of a shovel hook in some of his fights just a different angle that you have to look for and for McKinney when he's landing his right and there's a lot of extension or even that left cross leaves himself susceptible to getting hit but again the power is so good the wrestling is so good the only thing that I have for Ishmael Bonfim that might not be the greatest it depends on how much he does move his head on that outside but when I go back and I look through all of his fights he did just beat the AMC Fight Nights Global champ on Dana White's Contender Series in Nariman Abasov and obviously again just great at everything and he's also uh, really good at jiu-jitsu from the bottom position but you worry about that in a fight against McKinney where if McKinney gets a takedown, then you're playing bottom and top control in MMA, depending on who the judge is in the last I, little bit. 99% of the time, top control is Exactly, win. how it's going to be scored. So if you look at the odds in this one, McKinney is a slight favorite. We have a look at the top all votes, Matt. Surprised us there to you. And Terrence McKinney is a big-time fan favorite, and I think the fans are going to go with him. I'm going to say over under 70% McKinney. I'll say over. It's over. So right there, 924 total topology votes, 78% McKinney, 76% by knockout for the 22% that have bombed him, 55% by decision, 29% by knockout. So not a surprise that a lot of people have McKinney here. No, it isn't. But I will be honest. I look at this as more of like a 60-40, if not 55-45. I do think this is a really close matchup. And like you said, the style of striking that Ishmael Bonfim can use from the outside is probably going to give Terrence McKinney issues if McKinney isn't an accurate striker. Because that's the thing. If McKinney's landing all of his shots well none of that fancy boxing is really going to matter he's the longer fighter he does use his reach quite well but again if Bonfim can slip some of those shots respond to his own big ones the only thing I don't love about this fight is let's say Bonfim drops Terrence McKinney when Drew Dober had him hurt he could fall him to the mat and be strong enough to hold him down and rely enough on his wrestling to be confident enough with that part of his game not that I don't think Bonfim is a good grappler it's just if Bonfim even drops him it's probably one of those cases of just like get up and I'm gonna do it again so for those reasons and with the extra 
factor of McKinney's wrestling. I will ever so slightly pick him, but I think this is a prospect who has justified this type of a matchup, making his UFC debut. I'm really excited for the Bonfin brothers to see what their potential just well, could be. Yeah, just like that Run the Jewels song. I mean, picture this. Ishmael Bonfim could have been in the UFC in 2014. Like, I'm dead serious. He fought for a Jungle Fights title against Hanato Moicano. Moicano wins by finish. That was Bonfim's last loss 12 fights ago. And Moicano got into the UFC off of that He's win. good, guys. Like, that is kind of wild. I like Bonfim in the matchup based on the counter-striking, the volume that he can throw from the outside. McKinney, he's, he's one of my favorite fighters to watch, and I'll, I'll put that out there, MMA media member, whatever. But, like, when you watch McKinney fights... They're exciting as hell. Oh, yeah. And I love the skills that he has. I just, I feel like stylistically in this fight with Bonfim, with the volume, with the boxing, I think he can just counter-strike his way into a win in this fight. So we're split on the pick. People are definitely going to call me crazy on this one. I have Ishmael Bonfim. Sure. You have Terrence McKinney in the fight. I think it's going to be a ton of fun. Let us know, please, down below in the comment section who you have in this fight. Gabriel Bonfim's on this card as well. You're not going to want to miss. Keep locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. it. guys when they hit 41 and 258 pounds they pick up a hobby like woodworking or a motorcycle maybe they go the other way with it going to the market on saturday morning and then passing out on the couch saturday afternoon shamil Durkimov is looking to regain a little bit of that magic a little bit of that wander a little bit of that stuff that got him to the ufc and for Durkimov, he's in search of win number one since early 2019. Yeah, he's about four years away from wins. His last time out that time, he beat Marcin Tybora. He's been knocked out three times in a row. Once against Curtis Blades, kind of close to home, UFC 242. Ground out, 10-8 round in the first, finished in the second. Next time out, Chris Dacus, knocked out. Next time out, Sergei Pavlovich. He's going to win the title in 2023. And in those fights, he got knocked out by the same punch. This time, he's taking on Jailton Almeida. So a lot of people are going to be down on Abdurkimov. He's, what, 5-5 five and five in the UFC? He was a vet of ADFC and M1 Global. He made a vet at a UFC show against Derek Lewis years back. Like, people forget Shamil Abdurakimov at one point was of that level. Like, a main event caliber fighter. After losing to Tim Johnson and then winning two fights. And that's the thing. I understand Derek Lewis probably sold 98% of the tickets that were sold for that event. But still, you don't just, like, make mistakes and then end up in a UFC main event. But my big problem with Abdurakimov, and here's the thing. I feel like I've given Abdurakimov a lot of flowers, even in some of his losses. I remember the Chris Dawkins loss where, yes, he did get knocked out, but he was landed a really nice left hook of his own right in that matchup. Against Curtis Blades, there's not a lot of positives to be taken. They fought in a 130-degree stadium. He got taken down like 48 times. It was a really bad performance from him. But my big thing about Abdurakimov has been, and I brought this up at length in our last prediction video when he fought Pavlovich, He's a good grappler. Like, that is the basis of his game. When he gets on top of guys, he's very heavy. Again, go back to that Derek Lewis fight, because if you just watch the first four rounds of that, Shamil is having his way with Derek Lewis. He's taking him down, he's out striking him, he's out clinching him, and he gets a little lazy at the end of the fight and gets knocked out. But my big thing with Abdurakimov is... He's not the guy that he used to be. I just think that the wrestling tires him out at this stage of his career now. And people like the NBA comps. He reminds me a little bit of Josh Hart at this stage of his career. I really like Josh Hart for all the stuff he can do. Josh Hart doesn't shoot threes anymore. It's weird. Like, he can be wide open on the three-point line. Guys don't even bother closing out on him because he just passes it. 
Shamil, and that's a good part of his game. It opens stuff up for his team. It helps everything else flow. When Shamil is wrestling, it helps everything flow. But the problem is, he's a guy who struggled with his cardio in the past, like a lot of heavyweights after the opening five minutes, if we're being honest. But his biggest asset leads to his biggest downfall. So, Matt, when I went back and I did my research for this one, Jao Tan Almeida, our 2022 Fight Night Picks, if you missed it, go back and check out our award show. Should. He was our Rookie of the Year. And Jaltan, very, very special fighter, 3-0. and He beat Danilo Marquez, who's now with the PFL. He beat Parker Porter when he weighed like 216, and Porter weighed 265. And then he beat Anton Sirkali on short notice, who was replacing Shamil Durkimov. This is the third time this fight's been matched up. They really want Jaltan to beat up Durkimov to get into the rankings, because for some reason, if you beat Marcin Tybora four years ago, you deserve to be still ranked. It was like how Pavlovich was ranked for years, even though he didn't fight. But for Jaltan Almeida and for Shamil Durkimov, you know Jaltan's bread and butter. He considers himself the Brazilian Habib. He goes out there, spears you like Edge in the WWE, wraps your legs, you give your back, and then he chokes you out. Or he beats you by ground and pound. For Shamil, this is where I had to go back and think, okay, what's he really good at? Well, his takedowns, and I know he got taken down five times against Curtis Blades, and he excelled at it against, like, what, Walt Harris and, and Derek Lewis. And then I, th I had to think, what's his bread and butter skill? He's a national master of sport in Wushu Sanda, which is Chinese kickboxing. So a little bit like Muslim Salikov. Doesn't fight like him, though. And he's an international master of sport in kickboxing. And he's a five-time national Sanshu champ, which is what Sanda used to be called, with Sanshu. When the hell is Shamil fought like I, that? I, you're gonna at get, a high level. You're gonna get PO'd. This is why I roll my eyes at a lot of these who bring up some people's credentials. Like, he doesn't fight in that manner. That's the thing. Shamil Abdurakimov, if you just watch his MMA fights, you'd say he's like a wrestle boxer. I guess the Sambo makes sense with the background. But again, Shamil Abdurakimov. No, I didn't even say Sambo. Sorry, the wrestling in his back pocket makes sense. But the thing about Abdurakimov is, he's just a classic example of if he has that wrestling edge, he is going to use it in the majority of his fights. We just haven't seen that. Like, I thought against Chris Dawkins, we were going to yeah. see that aggressive version of Abdurakimov. He has a huge size advantage over him. Dawkins is a slick boxer on the outside. He's very speedy. If Dawkins is going to beat Abdurakimov, probably going to knock him out using his boxing. And the thing about Almeida, too, like, we brought it up at length. It's, hey, if he struggles against Porter, then maybe it's time to go down to 205 and we'll change the career a little bit. He was outweighed by almost 60 pounds by Parker Porter. That fight wasn't competitive at all. Now, I understand Shamil Abdurakimov got to a higher level than Parker Porter did in the UFC, so this will be a more difficult fight for Jalton Almeida, but he has demonstrated a lot of the skills in the UFC up until this point that lead me to believe that he should so, be able to have similar levels of success against a guy like Abdurakimov at this stage of his career. That's it. I mean, for Abdurakimov, you might like the striking, but it's less than UFC average. 2.6 strikes landed per minute to 2.8 received, so it's at a negative of 0.2, and the UFC average for and against is 3. So he doesn't throw as many strikes as most people in the UFC. His takedown defense is... But for a heavyweight, those numbers aren't bad, though. Like, that's UFC-wise, so a lot of yeah. guys in the lower weight classes are throwing it's... a lot of volume. I don't think Abdurakimov has bad volume. But again, we'll, we'll have to see what happens in this one, because it's a high motor out, out of a guy like Malaginho. But to beat a combat Sambo champ and Nasruddin Nasruddinov on Contender Series, to beat guys like Edvaldo de Oliveira outside of the UFC and Ildemar Alcantara, you might go, why are you bring those guys up? Because they were UFC vets that Almeida beat outside of the UFC, then he beat a combat Sambo champ on Contender Series, then he beats Danilo Marquez, submission specialist, in his UFC debut, then he beats a guy that outweighs him by whatever it was, 50-some-odd pounds in Porter, then he beats Tercali, who's a Swedish wrestling champion, 
I struggle to see Abdurakimov winning this fight, and I'll just say that. We'll have a look at the topology votes, because that's what we do on this channel. I'm going to say over under 85. No, I'm going to say over under 90. 2.5% Almeida. 2.5%. No, I'll 92.5%. It's over. 97% out of 947 voters have Almeida to win. 31% by submission, 58% by knockout, 3% of Abdurakimov to win. Stay away from it because Malaginio is a giant favorite. However, I, I don't see Almeida losing this fight necessarily. Uh, this is what this fight's going to tell us. How is Almeida going to deal with some of the bigger upper echelon heavyweights? I think that this fight might help us kind of dictate where he might belong in this division because let's say he can't take Abdurakimov down, has to work from the outside, and we do see him struggle a little bit against it's, a much bigger heavyweight, then it will make us question him moving forward against the Cyril Gons of the world, the Sergei Pavlovich, like big strong guys for this division. Well, Tommy Aspinall. Tom Aspinall's a big guy too. Hopefully his knee gets better at some point soon, but for Almeida... His skill set is very unique for this division, and I do think him being undersized is an asset for him. Like, I know we don't often say this, but in the heavyweight division, there's kind of a level where you're like, hey, you're a little bit too big, you're not as fast as some of the other guys. When you think about the heavyweight goats, it's Fedor, not a big heavyweight. Stipe, not a big heavyweight. Kane, JDS, like none of these guys were tipping the scales at the higher levels. I guess Francis is huge, but other than him, for the most part, it's been athletic guys in this division, and I think the athleticism is going to help Almeida. Both of, us, both of us in the matchup going with Shelton Almeida to get the win. Let us know who you have in this matchup. Some big, compelling fights on this card. The Bombfin brothers, Figueredo taking on a Moreno and Teixeira versus Hill. You're not going to want to miss any of it. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. The second of the Bombfin brothers. Hey, brother. Hey, Romano. We have Gabriel Maratinha Bombfin taking on the sniper Munir Lazez out of Tunisia. Very fun fight in this UFC welterweight division. And we have a lot of fights like this on this card where it's somebody who has experience in the UFC and a winning record taking on a debuting fighter. I mean, look at it for Gabriel's brother, Ishmael, taking on Terrence McKinney, who's already 2-1. Gabriel takes on Munir Lazez, who's... 2-1 in the UFC. And for Munir Lazez, look at the wins that he has. I mean, hell, the win he has in the fight of the night against Abdurazak Al-Hassan now ages very, very well. He loses to Worley Alves because he got kicked by three of the hardest tie kicks to the body I've ever seen in my entire life. And his last time out, all three judges scored at 30-27 against Ange Lusa, who likes to strike from the outside, and the sniper sniped in that fight. And for Gabriel Bonfim, what got him to the dance, it's definitely his boxing. And his brother has a boxing record, and so does Gabriel. But for Gabriel... He was a Brazilian super welterweight champion. And that does, hands, that does kind of account for something. And he was able to get a 5-0 record there. But if you do consider for a guy like Gabriel Bonfim, boxing from the outside, he is very well-rounded as well. And undefeated, squeaky clean record. He also happens to be an LFA welterweight champ. Now, LFA's kind of given that welterweight rub to some guys that you might go, Nacon Mendonca? Like the guy that's over with Bellator? Huh? Or... Uh, Carlos Leal that ended up over with the PFL, but for Bonfim, he was able to get that before he went on Contender Series last year. Derek Krantz also happened to be a welterweight champ over with the LFA, and it didn't work out in UFC, but for Gabriel Bonfim, Matt, I know we're both excited about oh, him, yeah. but I don't want to just prop up Bonfim too much to take away the shine from Lazez because both these guys on the outside are very, very accomplished strikers in MMA. They're very good, but they both do it in a very different way. For Lazez, like you said, he does like to kind of wait for the fight to come to him, counter-strike from the outside, and he is very effective in that manner. But I look at this fight like I've looked at a lot of different fights on this card. If Bonfim can throw in combination, and that's really going to be the key too, I think he's going to have to really mix in his combinations because if you go single shot for a single shot, Manila Lazez is a big guy for this division. I know they're both 
listed at yeah. 6'1", but Lazez has a very big frame, and he has big legs, too. And I know he was on the receiving end of some kicks against Alves, but I do think that at that range, he can have some success with some of his longer-range strikes. But if Bonfim backs him up between those two black lines, which is a position that a lot of guys do struggle with, like, okay, Dustin Poirier can fight behind there. Conor McGregor could in his prime, but there's a handful of fighters that can really excel on the back foot. I think Bonfield can have a lot of success if he can push Lizez back, but that's going to be the really interesting thing, because if he can't throw in combination to get Lizez's respect, it's going to be really difficult for him to push Lizez back, because Lizez is such a big physical guy for this weight class, and I think in the clinch, it will be interesting, because both guys could have success there, so I'm not really sure who's going to initiate some of those areas first. I think Lizez might try to go for it, just because Bonfim, for him to have success, he's going to be close to him. He's going to have to use that boxing, like we've mentioned on multiple occasions now, and for him to use that boxing, it's going to make him close close enough for Lizez to try to tie up, and I think we will see that a lot. If he can't have success with his own counter shots, it's probably just going to be, hey, get rid of the separation, put out that fire, because the thing about Bonfim is, if he gets into a rhythm, it's really hard to get him out of that rhythm. And it's it's kind of tough because with both of these guys, I think striking defense-wise for a couple of guys that are primary strikers, Munir Lizez actually does a better job at open distance. Gabriel Bonfim, for what it's worth, holds his hands really wide apart like it's a boxing stance without the gloves and he gets hit down the middle. If you go back and watch his last fight on Contender Series, he was on the same card as his brother and he took on Trey Waters. Trey Waters came in on really short notice for Dude. one of the best names in MMA, Felix Klinkhammer. And in that fight, Trey Waters was landing the jab on the outside. Now, Bonfim was touching him up, had his right eye swelled up, ran in for a double leg, got caught in the guillotine, and out of that, used the shoulder pressure to get a Von Pru choke. And we're going to talk a lot about a Vince St. Pru on this card because Shogun is on this card. Let's have a skateboard get thrown into the cage. That was wild. But if you do look at it for Gabriel Bonfim, and I go through all of the fights that he had, the one that he had at uh, LFA 126, his opponent weighed 175.8, so he couldn't win the title. He looked really good in that one. He looked great before that with the LFA. And I'll show you, like, in his fights, he's not just taking on strike, or grappler like the fight that he had a lfa 112 it was against a brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt and i'll put it up on the screen the combo he's able to land in the second round this guy goes body head and he has such speed and power in these combinations that he kind of catches his opponents off guard and feel free to disagree with this point if you want to but i think bonfim is better than angelusa like, I think he's going to offer up a more difficult matchup. I just think stylistically, Lizez is going to have to be on his P's and Q's with his counter-striking. Like, it's really going to... It, there's a small margin of error for both guys in this matchup. Because, let's say Lizez lands a good shot, kind of gets complacent on the back foot. I vividly remember Andre Koroshkov fighting Douglas Lima. And I know Which one? the positions were different, but in their second fight, Koroshkov's going to town on Lima. Beating the brakes off him, hitting him with combinations up against the cage. Lima does... The duck, roll, roll, counters him with one shot and puts him down. And Gabriel Bonfim does the same thing, plant exactly. that hook. And that's the thing. If Lazez does get caught with his arms out, away from his head on some of those counter strikes, Bonfim's really going to make him pay for being out of position in those areas. That's why I do think Bonfim is just going to offer up a more difficult stylistic matchup. Which might be a weird thing because here's the, the last thing I want to leave with people, like a B-dub-dubs fact. For Munir Lazez, you said it. I mean, both guys are listed as 6-1. Lazez has a reach advantage and he uses that in the majority of his fights. He's he did that huge. his last time out. Bonfim until 2018 when he was 21 was a lightweight and then he moved up to welterweight and he's starting to fill out you can see it for sure he's only 25 years old but the thing that might kind of 
counteract or contradict what we've been saying about the boxing from Bonfim is that 10 of his wins are by submission, or sorry, 10 of his submissions are by choke, and normally he gets it done on the ground. That's rear naked choke, triangle choke, he gets it done by Darce. He's not a guy that's going for the legs, it's going for Kimura sweeps. He is very adept on the ground, it's just that his hands set up a lot of the things that he can do on the mat. So, really eager to hear what people have on this fight, because I think the underdog sleeper here is Munir Lazez, and we'll have a look at the top Algy votes on this one. Bonfim, Lazez, surprised us, it is to you. I'm going to say over, under, I think it's going to be close. I'm going to say over, under 65% Bonfim. Uh, I like where you said it at. I'll say over, but I think it'll be very close, 65. 891 total votes, 82% Bonfim, 65% by submission for the 18% that have Lazez, 66% by decision. And again, that, that's why I kind of set it up that way. A lot of people are going to talk about the submission abilities of Gabriel Bonfim. It's just to show how well-rounded he is, that he doesn't have to get every fight finished on the mat. He just so happens to be a great fighter on the mat. But hopefully like, not like Carl Roberson. No, that's true, old Carl. But when it does come to that Serato MMA type, he is a very good counter-striker, like his brother, like his sparring partner in the same weight class, and a guy like Vicente Luque. It's just, I worry about where he could get caught by some of those straight shots. And I actually happen to like the takedown defense of Munir Lazez, who, out of the two losses... One of them you got finished by Warley Alves. One of them you got finished by a champion from overseas, an Eldar Eldarov, who's great on the mat. So eager to see what we get out of Lazez, because if you're not picking him, I feel like it's kind of one of those ones where you're going to be scratching your head by the end of the fight. Ah, uh, well, I will explain why I'm not going to pick him then. For Lazez, again, I think he can have success counter-striking, but the problem is he doesn't have as good a volume as Bonfim on the outside if they're just throwing combinations, so the numbers are probably going to be on Bonfim's side. And if Bonfim can dry out the counters from the counter-striker, it's like putting a wrestler on his back. When you dry out the counters from the counter-striker, it's going to, again, leave a lot of those openings. And I do think the counter-ability of Bonfim, based off those combination strikings, is going to be difficult for Lazez. Just who's going to be moving forward more often in this fight? If Lazez is able to get in some of his kicks and again be the bigger guy because i can't stress this enough i know it has their size i guess the reach kind of gives it away lizez is a big welterweight so i will be interested to see how that size does affect bonfim but i do have bonfim at the end of the day lizez landed 141 significant strikes against Ange lusa from distance and if you consider the three fights that lizez has had in the ufc the ufc records only have it if you've had more than five fights they put you in the all-time record book but if he was 7.4 significant strikes landed per minute for Munir Lazez in three fights. That would have him tied for seventh all time if he had five fights. And he what? throws kicks like an MFer, especially in the two wins that he had. The one against Al-Hassan and the one that he had against Losa. But what I said midway through was, and feel free to disagree with me, I think Bonfin's better than Angelusa. That's all. He throws in combination. When he gets in the pocket, I think he's going to be a lot more comfortable in the pocket. And I think those pocket exchanges are where Bonfin can have a lot of success. Again, I I'm not discounting Lazez's chances in this fight whatsoever. I'm just saying I like the combinations on the inside from Bonfin a little bit more. I think it's going to be difficult for Lazez to find some of that success while he's also trying to defend uh, in the pocket. That's all. I have a hard time picking this fight. I actually have Maritina Gabriel Bonfim. I think he can pressure in this fight. And the trouble that he has in a lot of his fights. Again, his hands are here. He can get hit at distance. Munir Lazez has a great opportunity in this fight. I hope I've laid that out if I've done anything. But with Bonfim, I, I struggle with the counter shots, but I love them. It's just that effect of the ground game. I do like the takedown defense out of Lazez. I just think that there's more ways to win for a guy like Gabriel Bonfim in a matchup like this. So I'm not completely sold on that submission ability just yet. I'd love to see it. I think this is a great and competitive fight. And just about 60% at Fight Night Picks on our Instagram poll 
will have Bonfim to win. So a little Close bit one. different than the top algae votes. Both of us going with Maratina, Gabriel Bonfim to get the win. I think it's a great fight coming up this weekend. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. It was reported on January the 8th by Guillermo Cruz of MMA Fighting that out was... Georgian superstar. It was Guram Kataladze and in on the short notice representing Brazil, the former Predador FC featherweight champ, Melk Costan. As soon as I thought about that, Matt, I thought, you know what? This guy reminds me all of a sudden with a nickname like that of your favorite all-star MVP. Matt, do you know who that is? I have no idea. Yes, you do. Melky Cabrera, the Milkman. You I absolutely like loved him. But for Melk Costa, this guy is such an interesting prospect and definitely due for an opportunity in the UFC. And it's not often that I say prospect when somebody has a record of already 19 exactly. and 5. But this guy's definitely grown as a martial artist. You remember him in the headlines in 2018, and you're going, Craig, no, I don't. Yeah, you do, because he was the guy on Twitter that got submitted and was unconscious in a ring for 90 seconds. And it was disgusting. But from that guy to the guy standing before you, again, definitely due for an opportunity in the UFC. And I know in his last five fights, he's 4-1, and one, and he lost three fights ago against Italo Gomez, where he did lose a decision Heck, I thought he won that fight. I thought he won two of the three rounds in that one. And if you go through his overall close. record, plenty of finish wins for sure. His last two fights, definitely getting it done with his hand. And if you do look at it, his last time out against Junior Mello where he knocked him out, he looked absolutely amazing in that fight and on fire. But for Costa Matt, this is one of those guys, it does feel like a lot of the fights that are on this card, like Lacerda taking on Stamen, like uh, what else? Bonfim maybe against McKinney. Costa's getting a shot against a guy that was recently ranked in the lightweight division in Thiago Moises. So a giant opportunity on short notice for Costa in this one. Without a doubt, but this is an interesting fight because it's a very yin and yang kind of fight. Like if Moises gets it to the mat, I'm sorry, but it's over. But guess what? If Moises gets 97% of the fighters in this division on the mat, it's over. The thing about Moises is he's a difficult fighter to predict because we've seen it before. I always bring up the Michael Johnson fight. Michael Johnson is not in his prime at all. He is well past it, but he was lighting Moises up in the first round of their matchup, looking really good, working on the jab, working in his long-range combinations, and the second Tiago Moises got him on the mat, it was over. That's the thing about Moises. He does have that kind of it is one-hit-one-kill jiu-jitsu. It really is. He's got leg locks, arm bars, chokes, and that's the thing about Moises that is nice. He does have a lot of variety to his submissions and what he fights for, and what I do like out of Moises too, and it is kind of a unique thing that only the upper, upper echelon black belts have, he'll go for a submission knowing that you're going to defend the first submission to set up the second one. Like a Charles Oliveira. Exactly. Charles Oliveira is a guy who's done this. Brian Ortega is very good at this too. He kind of did it when he did his jump off guillotine against Cub Swanson, like fake the Darst, went guillotine. That was just a crazy submission. But just the thing with Moises is, for his lackadaisical and almost lazy as he might seem on the feet, because that's the thing about Moises, his strikes aren't fast. It really does stand out how slow some of his strikes are from the outside. And it's blinding, I will say. Like, he can throw some decent volume sometimes to at least get your attention and then open up the rest of his game. But Moises isn't going to go out there and outstrike a lot of the upper echelon guys in the world. And even Costa. Now, here's the first thing. Melky Cabrera would never pass a USADA test. I love Melky Cabrera, but let's just call it what it was. For Costa, I do really think he does have a decided advantage on the feet. And I love the way that he can switch up his power shots in his combinations. Dan Hardy is the first person I ever remember bringing this up. I really spoke about it in depth, so I always try to give him the credit for for it when he deserves it because when Costa throws his punches let's say he's throwing a three punch combination jab right to the body left hook 
He can mix his power shot in to decide which shot is setting up the next and which one is really going to be that kill shot, the knockout shot. And that's what I do like out of Costa. Those are things that you just kind of learn when you're young in your career. Those are things that take the time. You train them. You perfect them over time. And that's what I do like to see out of Costa. Like, you talk about Michael Johnson against Thiago Moises. Long, rangy on the outside. Southpaw will mix in a little bit of a kick, but mostly with his boxing. Costa fights the same way. The only thing I don't know about Costa... I don't know how tall he is because if you look at it, the UFC Adam build is 5'10. LFA Adam build is 5'8. So I don't know if he's taller than a guy like Moises. I don't know if he's shorter. We're going to find that out when they stare them down on Friday. Yeah. Moises isn't a huge lightweight. Like, he's just a fighter who belongs in the division. You know, you never think, he, oh, Moises would move up or move down. Like, he's 155 pounds. Yeah, Moises is a little bit like Worley Alvish, where I don't know what version I'm going to get. And he always looks mean. I do know that. And he always looks like he's got. A little bit of a lip The in. good version's better than the good version of Orly. It reminds me that. of like Elvis Andrews. I stopped dipping, so now I have to wear like a dip mouth guard when I'm up at the plate. Andrews, love him. But for Tiago Moises, his fight against Joel Alvarez, like, what the hell are we doing, man? I thought he was going to win that fight nine times out of ten. He got his brains Joel bashed Alvarez. in. And that was harsh, brother. But if you look at it for Costa, again, going down through these fights, fight against Italo Gomez, the pre-fight preamble, he looked like Ty Lopez. I'm with my Lamborghini here behind Knowledge. him. And he goes into that fight, and they bill him. They say, this man is a grappler. What? Like, I know he trains at a shoot-the-box Barao, which is where he's from. Who's out of that gym? It's not the Charles Oliveira shoot-the-box Diego Lima. To Barao, Joanna Sombrito. And I don't like to compare team members all the time. Costa has one thing that Brito has. He goes balls to the wall when he is on the mat, and he tries to sweep a lot. And he'll use, like, leg locks to sweep at a bad position, and Kamoras to then sweep to get on top. And it works against a lot of fighters. This ain't the man. It's not going to work against Thiago Moises. So if they bill him as a grappler, don't be fooled. Now, Costa is really good on the mat. He's not Moises good. If he does submit him, it would be like the Jacare Souza uh, andre Muniz exactly, submission. Yeah. But... When I do look at all of his fights, Matt, his fight IQ, his clinch work, it's great. His boxing combinations, as you said, like, I, I, I love his kicks. There's, like, Cost is one of the most complete prospects you're going to find coming into the UFC. I love that he's in the UFC. I think he has a high ceiling. I think Moises is too much coming into this one. Yeah. And Moises is getting ready for a similar striker and a guy like Guram Kataladze. And I think the guys in American Top Team, like Moises... Conan Silvera, Mikey Brown, all the guys there. They're going to get you ready for fights against guys like Costa. It just, it feels too much too soon in a fight like this for Costa. And I know I picked a lot of these guys coming in on short notice or making UFC debuts to win fights like this. I have a hard time in this one. That's the thing. You can come in on short notice and fight an unranked lightweight that no one's ever heard of. But Tiago Moises is like... He's not that dude, but he knows that dude. You know, he's been in there with that dude before. The thing about Moises is he does have that checkmate in his back pocket that you always have to worry about. Like, it doesn't matter how poorly it's going for Tiago Moises. If you do try to get cute with him on the mat, he's taking a leg home. He's taking an arm home. Moises is like a more refined Claudio Poyas, kind of. Like, you don't want to mess with him on the mat. You understand how dangerous that is. But if you are that long-range striker and keep him away from you, you will have a lot of success. I just worry about Costa with a lot of his success coming from boxing range. It does let Moises be very close to him, and that is going to make the takedown maybe not easier for him. I don't think Moises is just going to go in there and, like, Curtis Blades him, but it will make it more available for him. And I think that's going to be the big factor, because, again, it's hard to pick against a guy who does have that trapdoor kind of a skill Costa 3-1 in 2022. All of those fights were three-round main events. His level of competition, combined record, wins and losses out of everybody. 
164, 78, and 4, and they were legit when I went back and actually clicked on the records. It wasn't like, oh, that guy was 20 and 0, but he beat Jay Ellis 20 times. So, Matt, in this one, we'll have a look at Topology for the votes. Uh, you know, we seem to both be on the same page here. Surprised us there to you. I'm going to say over under 87.5% Moises. I think it'll be slightly under. Uh, uh, 90%. So 633 total votes, 90% Moises, 51% by submission for the 10% that have cost is 60% by knockout. Cost is a better striker than okay. Tiago Moises. And and that striking will take him very, very far. I think it's great. He doesn't have a big reset after his combos either. He's just right back into the fray. And out of his kicks and his right hook, he can get right back into position and not leave himself out there to get hit. I just think it's, again, too much too soon. I like the jiu-jitsu and the takedowns out of Moises. And I worry about the in-betweens for Costa where they're a net positive in his other fights. They could be a detriment in a fight against a guy like Moises. It would be really difficult to do like the advanced statistical breakdown of this, but I think about this all the time. Let's say Alex Pereira has an opponent. Does that opponent have a level of kickboxer in their camp that can somewhat mimic Alex Pereira? Because some guys in the UFC are such specialists at one area that you really do need to go out and find one of the best fighters in the world to kind of mimic that fighter. Costa is a very good striker, but Moises does have guys in the gym who can mimic a lot of what Costa does. We have seen Moises have success against some of these guys who go in there being like, hey, a better striker than Tiago Moises. I'm going to go in there and knock him out and piece him apart. And Moises, like I keep on saying, has that trap door in his back pocket with the jiu-jitsu. I think Costa will have a successful UFC run. I just think this is a little bit too much too soon for him. Look out for the body kicks and the spin kick that Costa like, was able to land against Melo his last time out. Can land both of us in this one. Battle of Brazil, not going with the milkman. We're going with Thiago Moises to get the win. The mean man with the left in. To get it done for American Top Team, some big fights left on this card. Gregory Rodriguez taking on It's Me, Bruno is next time out. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fighting Apex, we always say. Let's get into it. On January 11th, with 10 days notice, it was announced that replacing the longtime ranked middleweight Brad Tavares would be a man who got a big time win over on Dana White's Contender Series in a main event slot. In Bruno the Hulk Fajeda, he's going to be taking on Robocop Gregory Rodriguez. And Matt, if you were to go up to Bruno Fajeda and with your limited Portuguese, I'm going to assume it's like a, it's not zero. You probably know like one or two words. Close to zero. Flamuchos Brasil, I hear that a lot and that's it. There's probably not a lot of it. But when you, if you went up to him yeah. and maybe through like Lucas Lutkus or another one of the translators out there, maybe Mr. Steal Your Girl. Where are you getting there. at with all of this? If you went up to Bruno and you said, hey, did you know MMA fights were traditionally three rounds he'd probably give you the russell westbrook like after the jazz what sure about that you sure do you know that bruno fajeda has finished every single one of his fights and this guy is a wrecking machine he doesn't know not striking he doesn't know like not jujitsu he doesn't know three rounds and going to a decision he doesn't fight with a style that's conducive to winning decisions put it that way he throws hammers from the outside he has like one touch jujitsu one kill type of stuff i know i mess that He's right strong, up dude but if you look at bruno fajeda he fights in a style that really matches up well against a guy like gregory rodriguez who fights in a style very similar to that. And I know Bruno, for what it's worth, has a great jiu-jitsu pedigree. I know he trains with a great gym, whether it's Evolu Sao Tai or his jiu-jitsu gym that he trains at as well. But if you consider for Gregory Rodriguez, multiple-time national jiu-jitsu champion over there, and Gregory has that judo in his back pocket that carries him first. So both guys jiu-jitsu black belts, both guys judo backgrounds. Bruno uh, is a black belt there as well. 
I think these guys stylistically, again, they match up really well. And a lot of people might have a lot of confidence with uh, Gregory Rodriguez. He also got knocked out by Jordan Williams on a contender series. So you got to kind of take the good with the bad. And he gets hit hard in a lot of his And that's what I keep on going back to. Like, we brought up Drew Dober when he fought Terrence McKinney earlier on in this card. Drew Dober is getting to the point now, I don't know about you, where I'm like, okay, the chin's not going to last forever. And with Gregory Rodriguez, I do worry about, okay, when is this going to run out? Like, you can't fight like this forever. And I really thought we were starting to see the limitations of his fighting style the last time out against Joe Kawani. Like, Chitty was beating the brakes off him for the first four and a half minutes of that fight. He was way faster, hitting him with knees up the middle. Like, really outclassing with some of the speed he was able to use. But in classic Gregory Rodriguez fashion... I don't know where he got the will to just continue in the second round. He had, I don't even, it looked like the eye of Sauron had like opened up between his eyes and he somehow was able to dig down deep and go out there and get his own knockout. Like that's one of the most gruesome cuts you will ever see in MMA. Gregory Rodriguez, Rafa Garcia, 2022. Pretty much. But the big thing is, and I know Rodriguez is only 30 years old. Like you don't really look at him as an old fighter, but these fights start to add up. And like you said, he got knocked out on Contender Series, which not a lot of people do remember. But with that, and with the fact that he seems to get rocked and wobbled in every single one of his fights in the UFC up until this point like not saying brad tavares is a good fight for gregory rodriguez but brad tavares isn't some thunderous puncher on the outside right like if brad tavares is going to beat you he's going to outclass you with his skills more so than his kind of wowing knockout power and gregory rodriguez had a great chance to win that fight with his boxing i just it's almost weird but the fact that bruno is more like gregory might cost rodriguez in this matchup because i think rodriguez is a lot like bruno just with a lot more of his skill set kind of filled in he's less of the peak and valley guy but the problem is their peaks and valleys are in the exact same things for the most part and i could see gregory rodriguez getting into a bit of a firefight feeling himself very early on and eating some of those big shots because the thing is gregory rodriguez is a great chin you know how we know that the man gets hit clean all the time. And against Bruno, you do not want to eat his shots from the outside. Well, the things that weird me out. So we look at that loss to Jordan Williams, who's a southpaw who landed a left cross, who's smaller than Gregory Rodriguez. Bruno Fajeda is four inches shorter, three inches less in reach, and throws a Superman punch from the southpaw stance that lands through the guard of a lot of his opponents. He throws overhands that land. Like, it really is weird. And I know if you consider it on Contender Series, you look at the episode that Fajeda was on. It was week nine. Jeff Alfilio got a contract. Would have been great if he was on this card. Uh, you also had, who uh, uh, was it? Aliyev that got a contract. Austin Lane, who's now going to fight Tafa. And then as well, Raul Rosas Jr. Fajeda was able to go out there, land against with a lot of stance switches, one of those Superman shots, and then he finished his opponent in that one, who was Aliu. So again, I look at this, and I read a really interesting thing. MMA junkie Dan Tom did a little bit of post-fight analysis on Fajeda's fight, and he said, listen, not that you know, you're trying to set a ceiling for this guy, but for Fajeda next, he'd like to have seen him fight like Dennis Tolulin. Or Joe Pfeiffer. And now he's that like, Joe way, fight would be wild. you're way up fighting a guy that's like on the fringes of the rankings. And for Gregory Rodriguez in the five on in, in the UFC, beats Dusko Todorovic, beats Junyoung Park back and forth, and then he finished him. Loses to Armin Petrosian, a split decision that could have gone either way. Finishes, Wasn't a great fight, which is weird. Finishes Julian Marquez, had him drop four times in that fight, and then finishes Chidi and Joe Kawani. Is it too soon, though? It seems like a step too soon for Bruno Fajeda. No, and I mean for Rodriguez coming back off the chitty, just because he took a lot of damage, and that was the thing I wanted to talk about. Like, it's just shy of four months ago. We're about on the four-month anniversary, if you will, coming up on fight night. Like, 
Not that he got knocked out or anything like that, but that's a deep cut that takes a long time to heal. And if watching a lot of boxing has taught me anything, it's that scars are an MF for later on in your career. And just the way that Gregory Rodriguez fights, it's not like he's unhittable. It's just everything in me wants me to pick Gregory Rodriguez, but every time I think, hey, this is a good prediction to make, there's a huge red flag that has Bruno Ferreira's face on it. Bruno Ferreira. Nine wins, six by knockout, three by submission, seven first round finishes, two of them in the second. He's never touched a third round. Matt, Gregory Rodriguez, pretty big favorite in the matchup. We have a look at the topology votes on this one. Surprise to us there to you. Listen, RoboCop is a fan favorite. I'm going to say over under 80% Rodriguez. Uh, I think it'll be under, but I think it'll be the favorite. It's over. Wow. 557 total votes, 90% Rodriguez, 84% by knockout for the 10% that have Fajeda. 78% by knockout. The fans are thinking of knockout. You think somebody's going to get a knockout? Yeah, I think there probably is going to be a knockout in this fight. I really like watching both these guys fight. Like, the film study for this one was really fun because it's not a chore to go back and watch either one of these guys' fights. I just keep on thinking, if you look at where both of their guys, uh, where the ceiling of their skills are, it's in the boxing, in jiu-jitsu, even though we don't really see it, but you know that both guys do excel in that. I just think that Gregory Rodriguez has a little bit more of that in-cage experience that you really only get from fighting at the highest level for a long time. And again, I'm going to say the same thing about Bruno that I just said about Costa in the previous matchup. I think he could have a relatively high ceiling in the UFC. I think he could go on and do great things. I just think this matchup against Gregory Rodriguez is a difficult one. And I know they're both Brazilian, but to make your UFC debut against Gregory Rodriguez in Brazil, like they're going to be excited to see Gregory Rodriguez. I think that's going to be a big pop from the crowd. That's a very overwhelming feeling to make in your UFC debut. Debut. So for those reasons, I'm going to pick Rodriguez, but I do think a lot of the positives from both guys do overlap, and that's why it's a dangerous fight. Both guys, the highest level of judo. Both guys, very good at jiu-jitsu. Bruno Fajeda out of Evolusao Thai with Bruno Silva, who's going to get you ready for a matchup like this, but also United Gym with his jiu-jitsu. Gregory Rodriguez at a Killcliffe FC. It, it, to me, it's a tough one to try and predict. And I know the odds are way apart. Like 84% at fight and a picks have Gregory Rodriguez to win. I'll take Rodriguez based on that in-cage experience, but guys, like, that's that's me saying I don't have a ton of confidence in it. So, both of us going with RoboCop, Gregory Rodriguez to get the win. You can make a great case for Fajeda down in the comments section. Hopefully, we laid out a pretty good game plan for both of these guys. A great fight in the middleweight division. Matt, Shogun Hua is going to retire. He is. Pride never die. A great fight against Ihor Pizzeria. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. Coming up this weekend, the legend retires. It's like Jay-Z and MSG after the Black Album drop, Matt. We have Mauricio Shogun Hua, one of only three remaining pride fighters in the UFC with Nick Diaz and Robbie Lawler, the other two. He's taking on Ukraine's Ihor Pazeria, the duelist, in a very interesting fight in this light heavyweight division. And Matt... People might love this. You got me a great Christmas gift last year. Hip-hop and other things. The Shea Serrano book. Shut up. And Matt, I had a little bit of a read through this one during the holidays. And back, this is in a chapter between like the, the late, well, early 2000s and the time period from August 20, or 2002 to 2003. Who gets the call? Jay-Z. And Matt, Jay-Z was on top of the world. But what did he like to do? Announce retirement and then come back and then announce retirement. Shogun's been in that position for a bit. Yeah. His second to last fight, he said he had two fights left. He took on Ovin St. Pru. He lost the split decision. He did still have some of those blitzes, but he got countered on a lot of them. The judges' scorecards are kind of all over the place. But my point is, Matt, 
Shogun Hu is one of our favorite fighters, like you and I. Oh. We get into MMA in 2008, 2009, and he was the guy. He was champ in 2010. He won in Montreal, for freak's sake, over Lyoto Machida. Knocked him out. I think you're going to appreciate this, Craig. Being a Shogun fan is like being a Derek Jeter fan. You don't want to admit the lows are as low as they probably are, but you're going to celebrate those highs like there's no tomorrow. You're freaking right! Like, I'm a real fan! The thing about Shogun is, you want to remember him beating multiple guys in one night for pride. You want to remember the highest highs of him winning a UFC title in the rematch against Leona Machida. Probably should have beat him in the should first fight. Should have beat fight. him in the first one! I threw a lot of really nice leg kicks in that matchup. The problem is... There's been an APB out for that man for the last decade almost. And that's been my big issue with Shogun. Like, you bring up the OSP fight and how there were some of those blitzes. Did you watch uh, Canelo versus Triple G3? No. Okay, I'm so happy for you. It was a waste of time. It was an awful fight. Because this is what happens to boxers when they're later on in their career. You have a lot of money. I have a lot of money. Our legacies are secured. Why fight like crazy and risk getting knocked out? That's what OSP versus Shogun was to me. Neither one the rematch. The rematch, exactly. Both those guys lost stock in that performance. OSP did his classic, I'm just going to stand here and not really do anything until you engage. And I guess he landed a couple more strikes than Shogun did. But neither guy looked great in that fight. I just go back to the Paul Craig the second time around when he tapped out due to strikes. And here's the thing. There's tough positions in MMA. I get it. Like, David Branch, when he was under Luke Rockhold eating that ground and pound, he tapped out due to strikes. GSP tapped the strikes to Matt Hughes. The Shogun that was on your shirt, though. The Shogun who went 12-1 and one in pride would have never done that. Like, Shogun his, is 41 years old. He's just not the same guy guys, anymore. His only loss in pride was to Mark Coleman like, when he got caught in an arm bar and his arm broke. Well, like, no, he just fell. He wasn't even in there. Yeah, well, he broke, he broke his arm, and then there was the Vanderlei Silva after, and there was an arm bar in that. But regardless, go ahead. It's just with Shogun, it's like, I love Derek Jeter. The last three years of his career were terrible. I love Miguel Cabrera. So, this year wasn't very good for him. Just, you can be great, and we should celebrate people for their primes. I'm a big believer in this. I think you should give people their flowers while they're still around, because it's unfortunate when you don't when they're not. And I think you should celebrate people for where they were at the peak of their career. It's no shame saying that a 41-year-old Shogun Hua isn't in his prime anymore, because at one point, he was arguably the best pound-for-pound mixed martial artist on planet Earth, regardless of organization. Do you think in Shogun Hua's retirement, they're going to give him like a tour like they did with Mariano Rivera with the gifts? Like the Padres that gave him a well, bite? Cycle. And that's the thing too. Like you bring up Rivera. Rivera had a great retirement tour. Him and David Ortiz were sick in their last seasons. Like they were both really good. Not everybody's going to be able to maintain their longevity later on in their career. And the unfortunate thing about MMA compared to other sports is if you tear your ACL, yes, it might hurt your speed, but for the most part, you can probably get that back depending on where you are in your career. When you get hit in the head, it takes something from you that you can't get back. And I just don't think Shogun has the level of durability that he once had in his career. And he doesn't have the level of want that he did when he was in pride. Like, this is a guy who has accomplished so much in the sport that I just don't think there's a lot more left now, to do. 2005, he was the pride middleweight Grand Prix champ. He beat Rampage with the soccer kicks. He beat Little Nog for the first time in three meetings. He beat him all three times. He beat Ricardo Arona and Alistair Overeem. And that wasn't his first Overeem win. He would go on to beat him again. Overeem and Arona were in the same night. Yeah, and the, the craziest win that Shogun has in his record, and that's why I have the Joe Rogan drop at the start of this video, and Matt, like, I will play it for sure. Joe Rogan said in the UFC when Shogun fought Machida, he's like, oh, this guy is a leg lock specialist. He only won by submission one time. Kevin Randleman runs across the ring. Yeah. The referee has to jump out of the way. He gets him in a double leg and then he gets caught in a leg lock and he doesn't know how to get out of it. And he keeps like moving positions and Shogun just holds onto the knee bar until he's able to get the top. And Randleman was caught in it bad. 
After that, he ends up, he beats Nakamura, he beats Alistair Overing, comes into the UFC. It's a little wishy-washy. Yes. It at, wasn't great early on. He was gassing at, out a lot early. At UFC 104, I thought that he beat Machida. Cecil Peoples scored three rounds for Machida in that one. But the second time out in Montreal, UFC 113, he's able to go out there. He lands in the blitz. He drops Machida. He finishes him with ground and pound. He gets up. He celebrates. It's crazy. Great moment. And then he fights John Jones and he loses and that's where our fandom, again, it's up and down. It was hard to be a, a Shogun fan. And then he went 5-1-1 one, and one for a stretch from like 2015 to 2020. But at the end... You got to break him down, yeah. Yeah, it didn't look as good. But Matt, I know it's a retirement fight for Shogun. And there's a lot of MMA fans that get into this in like 2016. You guys just don't have that Shogun kind of, you know, that look in the, the rear love. view. Yeah, like, like we might. But Matt, he's taking on Ihor Pateria, a much younger fighter, a guy who was favored to win. He was a minus 200 open against Nikolai, the Romanian fighter, his last time out. And by the night of the fight, he was a plus 120. We're going to throw it back to a little bit of a look and a preview of what we thought of Ihor Pateria coming into the UFC. People are going to be excited about Ukraine's Pateria, and I think he does have an interesting potential in the UFC. He reminds me a bit of like a Jordan Clarkson character, to where if you just watch his highlights, you're like, wow, this guy's one of the best in the league. But then you'll watch him in a game, and you're like, ugh. Okay, well, the highs were high, but the lows were also very low. And that's the thing about Ihor. I really do like a lot of these snapshots that you do see from his game. If he was able to just sort of take from some of the best of each one of his performances, then you could make up sort of a weird Voltron of a pretty good fighter. But the thing is, there is an inconsistency to even his performances, and the level of competition, which I know is something you're going to want to talk about later, is a little bit suspect at best. Close fight with a good fighter than some of the performances I've seen out of Ihor, where he just beats the brakes off guys that look like they don't even want to be in there with him. So, Ihor, I say I'm very excited about him. He fought a guy who is now a champ with Babylon MMA at light heavyweight in Lukash Sudlowski. And when you watch that fight, kind of the preamble on it is the fact that Ihor is an international master of sport in combo, combo sambo. Way to go, Craig. Combat sambo as well as pancreation. So, both good bases to have, for sure. Combat Sambo, huge in MMA, huge portion, very similar to the sport. You go down through it, I mean, he's 20-2. and two, He's on a 17-fight win streak. That's definitely important. And then I started to watch some of these fights. I mean, Ihor has a very sideways type of striking. He is a southpaw. He leaves his lead leg way out there, leans back quite a bit. And then he just throws hooks to close the distance and really get busy. And that's what I don't like about him. When you look at him from a long distance, he does seem to have decent movement. But then the second he decides to do anything offensively, he squares himself back up and kind of eliminates all the positives that he has set up for himself. That's the problem I do have with Ihor Pateria in this matchup. I just have no idea what we're going to get in the UFC. Like, there's a fighter there who could win this by first round knockout, and we could have, like, an Uros Medic on our hands, where it's like, hey, the record looks good, look how good the debut was. Like, maybe this is an entertaining fighter. There's another world, though, where he gets dropped by Negamarianu by the first overhand he throws, and then just gets convincingly out-wrestled for the next 14 minutes. Well, if you look at it for the duel, he used to fight a lot and he hasn't fought as much and obviously that's kind of a tale of the pandemic as well but if you look at his overall record a lot about living and a little bit of love 20 and 2 14 first round finishes from 2017 to 2021 if you look at it he fought five times in 2017 eight times in 2018 twice in 2019 twice in 2020 three times in 2021 and Dana White's big takeaway after he'd beaten Sadlowski over on contender series was well Ihor was a three to one underdog Okay, Dana, again, that's not how odds work. If one guy's minus 300 and you're plus 175, you're not a 3-to-1 underdog. You're a plus 175 underdog. The other guy was a 3-to-1 favorite. 
But I went through and I looked at it. The last three opponents that Poteria had, their combined records was 24-7. and seven. That's very respectable. Sadlowski over on Contender Series, very good fighter. The other 17 wins, 53-76. and 76. And again, the finishes. Majority of Poteria's fights were with WWFC. And you recognize that organization. I mean, Roman Delidze's coming through there. Denis Bondar, who unfortunately lost due to his arm breaking against Malcolm Gordon. Those are some of the names that I came up with. Also, Sergey Spivak. If you go and watch Poteria's fight coming into Dana White's Contender Series, the strangest dancing I've ever seen in my life. It looked like Mickey Rourke from Iron Man 2. I don't know what those women were swinging. It was like she had an octopus attached to her head. It was very weird. It was gross. And straight up, I go back through and I watch some of these fights. I'll give you an example. So WWFC 19, the last two opponents he fought were both from Georgia and both named Georgie. So again, take that one to the it's bank. It's not like being named Matt in Canada. Like I meet 10 Matts every group I ever enter. But the last guy that he fought, Georgie Kubajashvili, was 5-2 and two at the time that Ihor fought him he's now five and eight so he's lost six straight fights he was billed as being 29 years old he looked like Blagoy Ivanov's older brother he was the oldest looking 29 year old I've ever seen and in that fight he drops slash slips Pateria with a right cross so Pateria looks completely caught off guard that he's off on his back and then from there he ends up sinking up a wicked triangle choke off his back but I didn't really like that I know I sound like I'm ragging on the guy Okay, great finish. WWFC 18, the other Georgie, where the dancing happened. In that one, good double underhooks, and you can see that in a lot of these clinch situations, whether it's gone for by his opponent or he goes for it. Great double underhooks, doesn't do anything with it. Just waits. He keeps his back to the cage. He has double underhooks. He can't buck them off. It's just a bit of a stalemate. And a lot of positions I've seen Ihor in, once he gets up into top control, are we going for ground and pound? Are we going for the submission? It's just... I love his striking because it's wild, it's unorthodox, it's full of power. Alright, so not all that positive about Eeyore Pizzeria. No. Didn't fight a good level of competition, built as a combat sambo guy who struggles with takedowns. We saw that in his last fight. Struggled against the striking of Nikolai. And in this matchup, it's similar to Shogun versus OSP, 1 and 2, whichever one you want to look at. Because Pizzeria is that long-rangey southpaw that will throw kicks and will throw his left hand out there. And Shogun, like Nikolai walk you down squared up and throws in blitzes with his right hand out so a lot of similarities in a lot of those respects but i struggle in this fight because my brain says pick the younger fighter that has a nice sexy record that didn't look good in his ufc debut he should beat a 41 year old shogun hua but at the same time ior pateri is not like the the fighter that i thought he was going to be uh, that's fine. But I didn't even think he was going to be a, a great fighter. That's fine. Just with Shogun. Remember what Evander Holyfield fought Vitor Bell for? Yeah. Was... I like barely even knew. Like, I thought I had a weird fever dream when I Googled the event to make sure that it happened. And oh, yeah. yes, Vitor was past his prime too. But like, when guys can't take a shot anymore, you see what the end result is. Like, Evander Holyfield got hit by a grazing shot on the side of the head and immediately went down. I know he's like... 55 at this point but for Shogun I just think he's at the stage of his career to where if he gets wobbled the recovery just isn't there like I don't think he can get hurt recover and then have success after that I know we saw that in the Tyson Pedro fight Tyson Pedro also tore his ACL on that and was like having a lot of troubles with the stability the, of his knee the other thing that I struggle with in this one for Pateria to be this young of a guy to be this untested
tested. If you go back and watch his fight against Nikolai, where he gets taken down and up and down in the striking, he's completely gassed at the end of the first round. And in the second round, his hands are completely low. He, he's got nothing left in the tank. He ends up going out there and getting finished. And for Shogun, I know his last win, or sorry, his last loss, is a split decision loss against OSP. Judge Rick Winter scored at 30-27 OSP, 14 to 2 on MMA decision scored at 29-28 for OSP. So for Shogun, he can get out to a really good first round like he did against OSP, but then he started to chase as that fight went on. He's always been a guy who's had poor cardio, but the damage he was able to inflict on his opponents would kind of even the playing field in that aspect. Like, it was a conversation, even when he fought Forrest Griffin way back in the day. I remember that fight vividly. Shogun's looking good. He's hurting Griffin on the outside. He slows down even a second, and Forrest Griffin doesn't outskill him. He outpaces him. He kind of outworks him. And that's always been a thing with Shogun. At this stage of his career, it's kind of hard for him to put that damage on guys in those early rounds to then put that money in the bank so it saves them later on. Like, nothing would make me happier to see Mauricio Shogun Hua win in front of a Brazilian crowd by stoppage even and go out like the hero he is. But in MMA, like in most sports, no one has a happy ending, and especially in combat sports, nobody does. I agree with you. I'm not sold on Pateria whatsoever, but at this stage of Shogun's career, I don't know how many fighters in the division I would favor him over. No, it, it really is a tough one. It does come down to it. So we have a look at the top all you votes, Matt. Surprise to us is they surprise to us there to you. And I'm gonna say over under it's gonna be weird. I'm gonna say over under 70% puts the area. I think it'll be in like the 90s for him, to be honest. 83% out of 965 yeah. total votes, 84% by knockout for the 17% that have Shogun, 52% by decision. 36% by knockout. I'm not sold on Poteria at all. I, I wasn't sure what to make of him coming into the UFC. Nikolai's kind of wishy-washy. I think he's a good fighter, but regardless, I'm not sold on Poteria. I know he's been training out of Lumpindi uh, Muay Thai, so that is really cool. He did that prior to his fight against Nikolai. He's done that after as well. He's kind of bounced around, but not really so it seems from his Instagram to be training out of ATT, which he was before the Nikolai fight. I can see that being a detriment. I'd like to train out of that gym ahead of a fight against Shogun. But if you're working the Muay Thai, you're working your striking, I do like the long stance. I do like the fact that he can kind of hit a squared up guy like Shogun. And Pateria landed a nice left hook against Nikolai that got his respect in the second round before the knees started to take effect. And boy, were they hard. I Very think we hot. both agree, though. We both have Pateria, but this isn't a fight that I'm going to reference in the future for how good Pateria might be. Like, he could knock out Shogun with the first I, punch he throws in the first I round. I won't gain any stock from him. And he it. could lose a decision where you're like, man, this guy, like, wow, we definitely learned something. Look at that record. Look at it now. I have Pateria, but this is the most pop and popcorn stay away from it type of fight that's on this card. Shogun's 40. I just don't think Shogun has anything left, is the honest truth. I, it pains me to say that. Like, he is one of my favorite athletes of all time. But you just gotta be honest. Like, Kyle Lowry's washed too. I wear his jersey all the time. It's just some people, when they get to a certain age, they fall off a cliff. I think that cliff has been jumped off by Shogun. I would be very happy to see him win. I just don't think it's going to happen. Both of us going with the duelist, Ihor Pateria, breaks our darn hearts. But Matt, it should be a fun fight. And to kick off the main card, Paul Craig taking on Johnny Walker. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. This weekend, a big-time fight to kick off the card. UFC 283, we have a clash of styles. I dug deep in the record collection to think of the biggest clash of styles records that I have. It's like if you had Ghost 
Going up against Charlie Pride. Charlie Pride, who named this album Charlie Pride's 10th album. I like Charlie Pride's country music. I think that one came in between the 9th and the 11th. It, sure I, I'd say it did, but if you look at this one, Matt, we have the grappler in Paul Craig representing Scotland. You have Ireland's Brazilian Johnny Walker, the absolute walking wild man. And his last time out, I never would have thought he was going to submit Yuan Kutsela, but my goodness, did he ever do that in the first round? Now, is Johnny Walker now like, you know man about town and he's going to go out there and submit paul craig i certainly hope he doesn't but in a matchup like this matt for paul craig's last time out he did what got him to the dance against vulcan ustamir he went oh 15 takedown attempts and landed 26 percent of his significant strikes and he was almost in nick sarah takedown category of like butt scooting his way to a loss he looked he lost a ton of stock in his last fight i don't know if you just consider that like, it's all of his fights. Did he know? Because that's how he fight. always fights. Because that's the thing. Like, if Paul Craig can't get the takedown, he's going to look bad. If he gets the takedown, he's going to look really good. Like, I got to be honest. I don't think we learned anything off the last fight, positive or negative. We They are who we thought they were. I forget who said that quote, but there's a very famous Coach football. Coach the Cardinals. There you go. But for Paul Craig, he is who we think he is. Claudio Poyes, Paul Craig... Not Brian Ortega's. Brian Ortega's awesome on the feet. But you get the idea. Like, there is a boatload of fighters out there who have poor wrestling, which is weird because they're such good grapplers. Uh, decent striking because there is a bit of a level to this. Like, the thing with Paul Craig is every now and then he'll throw, like, a three-punch combo where you're like, damn, where did that come from? Hit but, squad boxing. But then the problem is he won't really sustain that for any point throughout the fight because he is so dedicated to the grappling. So it's really hard for him to get a rhythm with his striking when he is so grapple-oriented. But what I will say about Johnny Walker, maybe we didn't learn a ton about him either in the Kutalaba fight, but at least we saw a wrinkle of his game that isn't often utilized. And that is nice to see because for Johnny Walker, the conversation is, hey, it is highlight reel knockout win or highlight reel knockout loss for the most part. But for Walker, he has seemed to start fleshing out the game a little bit. And now maybe I'm even going to bring up the loss he had to Tiago Santos as a bit of a positive because I thought at least in that fight he didn't just go balls to the wall and although he did lose he didn't get mopped he didn't get outclassed he just fought a very cautious fight against a guy who is and, dangerous and, and th I just think that that might be a positive thing for a guy who is as reckless as Johnny Walker can and be that was the SVG fight that was Johnny Walker's gone to SVG's kind of planted roots John Kavanaugh and Kavanaugh's cornering was kind of like well you know we think you're up so we'll go from there and then John, John Kavanaugh and Johnny Walker's last fight had to take the video outside of the casino because Johnny Walker was in his trunks just walking around they kicked him out the man won a $50,000 performance bonus for me <laughs> If Johnny Walker wins this fight against Paul Craig, do they go, hey, streets are real. Here you go. Here's Johnny Walker. Have fun. I think he'd be a celebrity. He would have, could you imagine him dancing like the aerial footage? It'd be wild. It but would be. You consider it for Walker before his last fight. It was my big point. I picked Kutsalaba to win, but I said, Walker's been training with an Olympic wrestler in Riyadh Ayuafi as a coach over at SVG. That's going to help out. But again, I never thought he'd submit him in a million years. But for Walker, we know it out of his striking. He's long, he's rangy, he has a six-inch reach advantage in this fight, and he has two and a half inches in height. It might even be more, who knows. I know he married a lady from Ireland, so again, the roots are strong for Johnny Walker. A we have worldly a, man. We have a couple of guys representing Western Europe. But when you look at this fight, though, Matt, again, the striking out of Walker, will he get pinned down by Paul Craig? We'll see. But I look at this fight as... It's just like when Nikita Krylov fought Paul Craig. Is Johnny Walker going to go out there Jamal Hill too, yeah. and hammer away on him and then just kind of forget what he's doing and get kind of baited into the ground game? Or will it be Paul Craig, like what Krylov was able to do against Johnny Walker, take him down, hold him down, and that's the, the majority of the fight? I would rarely say Nikita Krylov has like the best fight IQ of all time. I would say that's really his Achilles heel that holds him back, if anything. 
But for Walker, it is kind of wild. Like, I think he has worse fight IQ than Nikita Krylov, but I still like him in this matchup. Because for Walker, we have seen him at least defensively with his footwork be able to avoid some of the takedowns, and that's what I do think is going to be important. Not just the fact that he can dig under hooks and he's a big physical guy, he uses his footwork in the light heavyweight division, and against a guy like Paul Craig, who is good at going for takedowns. See, I didn't say he's a good wrestler, because he's not. Like, Paul Craig's not a guy like Chael Sonnen who's going to, like, push you through the cage and keep on going. He's going to go for unorthodox trips he's gonna get a little sneaky with it and i think stuff like that is going to get thwarted by the footwork of johnny walker i think it's gonna be really hard to pin walker down and when it comes to who's the better striker on the feet i think your grandmother who's never watched the fight before could probably tell you who the better striker is between these two guys johnny walker is so much more fluid on the feet especially from the outside that i don't really know what paul craig's going to be able to do in terms of striking to really be able to dampen some of the explosiveness that johnny walker has paul craig on that run the four wins three performance bonuses one against antigulov one against hill one against krilov and he also beat shogun hua into submission due to his strikes he also had her submission of the year 2022 the win that he had over nikita krilov Matt, again, Craig ranked ninth in this division. Johnny Walker at number 12. We'll have a look at the topology vote. Surprise to us as they are to you. I'm going to say over under 75% Johnny Walker. I think they'll be over. Paul I think Craig, people are low on Craig after the last one. And, no. and look at that. So 1,010 total votes. 51% Walker. 80% by knockout for the 49% that have Craig. 77% by submission. And before Paul Craig's fight against uh, Volkan Uzdemir... Like, he was in that 75% category, the fans going with him to get the win. On our Instagram page on this one, 52% have Johnny Walker, 48% have Paul Craig to get the win. So who do you have in this one? Because the fans have it lined really close. If Paul Craig takes him down, Paul Craig's going to win by submission. But again, I can say that in any single Paul Craig fight he has ever had in his whole entire life. Like, he is of the level of one hit, one kill jiu-jitsu. We talked about it before with Tiago Moises. And that's why it is difficult to predict a Paul Craig fight. Because it can all be going so wrong for him until it looks good. I just don't know what he's going to do on the in-between. So for that reason, could Paul Craig win by submission? That's why I kind of snickered at the topology votes. I couldn't agree more. Like, Johnny Walker's probably going to win by knockout, or Paul Craig's probably going to win by some crazy come-from-behind submission. I'll pick Johnny Walker, because I think he can do more on the in-betweens if this does end up going to a scorecard uh, type of situation. But I do have Johnny Walker in this one. Johnny Walker with Owen Roddy and John Kavanaugh working the strike from the outside. I think Johnny Walker's going to win this fight. And as a callback, Matt... Charlie Pride's ninth album, because he posted all of the album names on the just back case of this you album, was well, not his ninth album. It was uh, Just Plain Charlie Pride. Or sorry, Just Plain Charlie by Charlie Pride. His the eighth album, furniture that probably got moved to that soundtrack. The tenth album. No, I really do actually like Charlie Pride. My favorite song on this one is There's Nobody home I don't to go home get to what i meant when i said some sad songs by charlie pride matt some big time fights on this card both of us going with walker in the matchup let us know who you have in this fight and in our next one we have one of the greatest women's mma fighters of all time Jess Kondrash taking on one of the greatest stories of all time in lauren murphy you're going to want to make sure you tune into that keep it locked in with fight name picks we always say let's, let's get into it, it. One of the greatest women's MMA fighters of all time, the former Bantamweight, Strawweight, now Flyweight. It is Jessica Andrade taking on one of the greatest stories of MMA of all time, Lucky Lauren Murphy. And in this matchup, Andrade fighting up in the rankings, taking on Murphy, who in her last time out beat a former champ 
and Misha Tate and got that dub. So if you do look at this one, Frandraj, she was on a lot of people's shortlist from 2022 of submission of the year. She had that standing guillotine win over Amanda Lemos. She will probably maybe be one of the next title challengers yeah, thank you. at strawweight. And now Andraj again, goes from that to bouncing up to flyweight where she was able to beat Cynthia Calvillo in her fight before. Andraj is the best fighter that isn't a champion in women's, well, at least the UFC's women's MMA. It's absolutely wild to see what she's been able to do. The body shot against Caitlin Chukagian, the wins that she's been able to get. She didn't look good against Shevchenko. And her last loss at... 115 pounds. I know it's been a little bit of time ago. A split decision loss to Rose Namajunas. She roughed her up in the third round of that fight, though. She did do some good work in that one. So, for Andrade, I know it's 3-2 and two in the last five fights. You consider the level of competition that she's had, but you look at it, I mean, she's 14-7 and seven since she debuted in the UFC in 2013. She's got five performance bonuses, four fight-of-the-night bonuses, and for Lauren Murphy, she has one bonus in her UFC career. It was way back in 2016. It was a fight of the night against Matt's favorite fighter. You know what it is? I do. Kelly Fasholtz. Way back when. This Remember when? is a weird fight. And this... Do you agree with me on this? This is how I want to start it. Jessica Andrade in any other sport is a Hall of Famer. I think she's a Hall of Famer. I actually have That's that my in my notes. So my thing about Andrade in the UFC Hall of Fame is that the UFC Hall of Fame very much feels like a popularity contest. Think about Uriah Faber, for instance, who has done great things for the sport. But Uriah Faber, the large portion of his success was had in the WEC. And he was more well-known for his rivalries and more of his star potential in the UFC. If we're just going off accolades... Jessica Andrade has beat the number one contender in the Bantamweight division, Raquel Pennington. I know they've split fights, but still, she has a win over the number one ranked Bantamweight, a fighter who has fought for the title, and she's only lost to people who have held titles other than that. That's kind of an insane run that Jessica Andrade has been on as of late. The fact that she is basically the number one contender of two different divisions, like, Andrade can walk into a title fight whenever she wants to against Valentina Shevchenko. And I know the first time around it didn't go all that well for her, but I'm going to sit here right now and tell you this. She's the only person in the top 15 who's really going to have competitive fights against Valentina. No, I think Manoff beats her. Uh, you can think that, but going into the fight, Valentina would still be a big favorite, I would say. And I know Santos was able to show a little bit more, and Valentina's becoming more human. I'm just saying, Andrade skill for skill is one of the few fighters going up against Valentina Shevchenko that I would still get excited for if they did end up doing the rematch, even though, like I said, their first fight didn't go well. But again, if you want to break down Andrade, this is what I've always felt is her X factor. I know she's a good power puncher. She is extremely physically strong. What's that aspect of fighters' games that they don't normally have when they have those two parts? Her cardio is pretty good, and that's the wild thing about Andrade. Not only can she throw with power, with output, she has the cardio to go along with it, not only in three-round fights, but in five-round fights too. Like, remember when she fought Yawani and Jacek all those years ago? I know Yawani was doing a very good job at hitting her with a lot of volume early, but as that fight went on, Jessica Andrade was getting closer and closer and closer, and even with Rose in their second fight. I know she lost, but by the third round of that, she had Rose's face all busted up, her eye was a mess. I think for Andrade, this to me is almost like a stay-busy kind of fight, and Lord Lauren Murphy might be coming off one of the better wins of her career. That Misha Tate win is one of those wins that's like, hey, don't forget about me. I am still one of the top fighters in this division. I just don't know if Misha Tate was a fighter who is still necessarily at the same stage of her well, career that Nandraj And is. I mean, Murphy, she was on that five-fight win streak before she fought for the title, and the title fight didn't go all that well. But then she goes out there against Tate, and it was almost like... Calvin Cater after Holloway before he fought Chikadze. Y'all must have forgot. Trevor Two Lawrence judges the second half. had it 30-27 for Murphy in that matchup. And Murphy trains at a great gym to get ready for a fight like this. Genesis Training Academy, pound for pound Muay Thai, up at elevation. Miranda Mavericks there. You also have uh, Claire Guthrie. You have J.J. Aldrich. You have 
Rose Namajunas. So a couple, or not even a couple, a lot of really good fighters to train with to get ready for Jessica Andrade. People that have experience with Jessica Andrade. And again, she also trains at home at Heritage Muay Thai. That's Eve Edwards. That's Matt Schnell. Those are people that are going to get you ready specifically for somebody like Jessica Andrade. If you look at it from total opponent UFC record, from the people that they fought, that they beat, that they've lost to, all of their accumulated just UFC records, for Lauren Murphy, 33-22. and 22. For Jessica Andrade, 74-26-1. and 1. It's not even close that way. And Andrade is only 31, and Lauren Murphy now 39. Now, Lauren Murphy's not your average 39-year-old. And she hasn't taken that kind of like beat down damage that some other 39-year-olds would have, like a Tim Means or like a Matt Brown. But what's Lauren Murphy known for? She does show a lot of swelling in her fights. And especially if she does get hit by a lot of volume. And not that Andrade is going to go out there and really pepper the jab in her face to try to get that swelling. But if you're known as being a hittable fighter, and that's what Lauren Murphy is now, luckily, she can dig deep, make it an ugly fight, and use that clinch work. Those are all areas where Jessica Andrade not only can have success in, I would say she excels in all those areas. And the thing about Andrade, too, her takedowns are insane. Like, you would never teach a wrestler, like, hey, watch Jessica, Jessica Andrade tape and then do what she does. But those, like, one-legged, full-body presses where she just slams chicks on their head, like, those are legit damaging takedowns. And for Murphy, again, like, I, I thought the fight that she had against Lilia Shakarova, who just landed into USADA issues after that fight against Murphy, and we haven't seen since, was a very accredited grappler. Same types of takedowns as Jessica Andrade, and Murphy was able to go out there and whoop, just flip that right around on her. So we'll see what happens coming up this weekend. Matt, topology votes. Surprise to us, they are to you. The former Shrawi champ, Jessica Andrade, I assume that she's favored on her Instagram poll. It's not very close. I'm going to say over under... 87.5% Andrade. I think it will be over, but can I throw up the only red flag that does concern me in this matchup? The way that Andrade fights reminds me a lot of like the way Allen Iverson played basketball. And I've said this before. When you rely on your athleticism and your strength to its fullest of capacities, the second you start to lose that, any of it at all, it affects everything you do in your game. Luca has said this many times. I don't have to be athletic. Really athletic guys make mistakes. If I'm just perfect at the fundamentals, you really have to be that crazy athlete. For Andrade, she will leave openings with her striking. It's just her power is so overwhelming that no one can really stand up to it. But when they do, a la Shevchenko, we can and see what happens on the other side of it. So I will throw that up there. I feel like with Andrade, when she does get old, it might just happen overnight, even though she is only 31. I just feel with her style of fighting, it really does rely on her athleticism. Topology votes, 1,008 of them, 95% wow. Andrade, 68% by knockout for the 5% that I'm Murphy, 63% by decision. On our Instagram, 86% have Andrade to get the win. I have Andrade in this matchup. I think the takedowns, the ground a pound are a big thing. But it's, it might sound contradictive a little bit. With Lauren Murphy being the older fighter, she's been able to have this career longevity based on that finesse and those skill sets. So for Murphy, as this fight wears on and in certain pockets, she can have a lot of success. I just do kind of lean on the fact that Andrade has been able to do it against some of the highest level athletes in not one division. Not two division, but three divisions. So for me, I do have Andrade in the matchup here. She beat Rose Nami Yunus by slamming her on her head for the title. Like, Jessica Andrade about this life. She is one of the most violent pound-for-pound -pound fighters in the UFC, be it with submissions or with knockouts. Like, if you want to see a finish in a fight, just watch Jessica Andrade because she goes in there trying to win and not trying to get it to go to the judges' scorecards. I have her in this matchup, but I do think Lauren Murphy's uh, just durability is really going to help her in this matchup. Now, that might be a bit of a, bit of a double-edged sword at a certain point, but I said it before. I think Andrade is a deserving Hall of Famer. In baseball terms, she'd have like 85 war. Uh, so, but 
I think it'll be a fun fight. Both of us going with Andrade to get the win. Magni versus Burns coming up next at Welterweight. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fighting Picks. we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. it. Top 15 ranked welterweight square off in the main card, UFC 283. We have Killcliffe FC's own Dorinho Gilbert Burns taking on the Haitian sensation Neil Magny. And with Magny's last win, he became the all-time winningest welterweight in UFC history, eclipsing George St. Pierre. He's also the most or the fighter with the most decision wins in UFC history. He's like Cy Young though. He's a stat accumulator. If you, I brought this up earlier. Like, you have to look at fighters in their primes. The wild thing about Neil Magny is he went on one of the better win streaks in the welterweight division at one point. I believe it was seven fights in a row before he ultimately ended up fighting Damian Maya. And at that point, Damian Maya was like the ultimate hot knife through butter. But still, for Neil Magny, he was on one of those runs in his career. And this is a strange stage for him. And the weird thing about this fight, not to hijack your part, but Neil Magny, to me, at this stage of his career, is best suited to fight guys like two fights ago when he fought Shavkat Rachman. Now, fight these sort of unknown guys who can this is going to sound bad the way I'm about to say it, who can exploit some of your weaknesses. Because Neil Magny's a super well-rounded fighter. Like, he's pretty good in every area. He's a good wrestler. His grappling's good, especially offensively. His striking's pretty good. He's not the most powerful guy, but good he's got good Good at getting back volume. up to his feet, exactly. normally. Neil Magny has all of those really nice skills you look for in a mixed martial artist. But when he fights specialists, we normally tend to see what happens. Like, they use that one specialty, and they have a lot of success. That's why I like Magny fighting a lot of prospects, so we can learn more about those prospects Gilbert Burns was that fighter six years ago. We talked about Gilbert Burns in 2020 as, hey, if he can put it all together, he'll really become something special. He's been a pretty special fighter for almost years now. Well, and you look at it, I mean, I, I get it. Like, Gilbert Burns is the older fighter in terms of fight years, though. Neil Magny's been in the UFC since the Ultimate Fighter 16. Didn't win the season, got a win in, like, the finale, and then he continued on. But 20-8 and eight in the UFC, and out of his last three fights, if you look at it for Magny, he fights uh, Max Griffin, beats him by split decision, gets dropped in the first round. He goes out there and fights Shavkat and gets mopped. And then his last time out against Daniel Rodriguez... Wins the first round, loses the second round, losing the third round, and then he submits him. And he, he looked odd in that fight. He ended up getting a performance bonus. That was his first performance bonus since 2016 when he came back against Hector Lombard. And he got mopped in the first round, and then the second round he came back out guns blazing. But for Burns... 13-5 in the UFC, debuted way back in 2014 against Andreas Stahl. And he's had kind of those, again, peaks and valleys. You look at some of the losses Burns had at 155. Like, he lost to Dan Hooker. And then he beat Ove Ove Olivier Aubin-Mercier. I should be able to get that one right. Burns, peaks and valleys, but at welterweight, there's been a lot more peaks than there has been valleys. And even in the losses, he looks like a, the same fighter. That's what I like about Gilbert Burns. Like, it's hard to outclass Burns. I know Usman stopped him. But, like, if you watch the whole fight, it's not like it was just a one-sided beatdown. Gilbert Burns wobbles him early, kind of gets a knockdown, at least puts him on a knee. Like, Gilbert Burns had success in that fight. You don't need me to tell you how good he looked against Hamzat Shamayev his last time out. And this is what I like, too. He took time off after the Hamzat fight. I brought this up about Gregory Rodriguez. Gregory Rodriguez won a fight earlier, uh, I guess, later on last year. But about four months ago, where he took a lot of damage. Gilbert Burns, it was a close fight. I didn't think he won it. But he did take quite a bit of damage in that matchup. So it is nice to see him give himself time to heal. And and again, that was a fight of the year early in 2022. The win that Burns had before that against Wonderboy Thompson, he kind of wrote down the blueprint for Bilal Muhammad. Take the guy down. Hold him down. It's easy, but it's not that easy. So yeah, it was not a great fight. But when it comes down to this one, Magny in his last three fights, again, it's been a little wishy-washy. And for Burns, you could say the same thing. But again, Burns fought for the title, 
beat Wonderboy, who looked great against Kevin Holland his last time out. And then in his last fight, a fight of the year where he got dropped early against Shamayev. He landed great shots against him in, him in the second round. And the third round was kind of just all hell broke loose. So a really fun fight in this one. This is the one where I want to see what the fans are thinking on this one because Burns is actually a pretty heavy favorite. I will say that if it was five rounds, I would say Neil Magny has a better chance. Like Gilbert Burns throws a lot of power shots. And in a three-round atmosphere, I think he can go a hard 15 minutes. I do worry about Gilbert Burns in that 20th, 25th minute just because he puts so much behind all of his shots. The good thing about Neil Magny is he's going to pepper away at you from long distance, sort of like the male Caitlin Shukagian, if you will. Now, he's going to plant his feet a lot more. But I think you'll agree with me on this. Isn't this fight going to look a lot like the RDA fight with Neil Magny? Like, what did RDA do? Kicked him in the leg, dropped him from the leg, kicked, got on top of him, submitted him. Gilbert Burns is way better than Neil Magny at kicks, especially. Like, he throws them. Neil Magny's not much of a kicker. He'll throw a, a prodding body kick every now and then. And jujitsu-wise, these men are not in the same and, planet. And not that Magny will struggle from the same position, but where was RDA so active at such a height disadvantage, reach disadvantage? He gets it down, and then he's in half guard, and Neil Magny was just kind of fish no out of water on his back. So we're actually going to throw this on over to you folks. At Fight Night Picks over on Instagram, we threw the poll out there before the fight. Matt, what would you say the fans are thinking on this one? I think Gilbert Burns is going to be a sizable favorite, to be honest. I think people are down on Magny based off the Shavkat performance. I think a lot of people are going to remember that. Shavkat's pretty hot right now. And for Burns, he lost his last time out, but again, lost no stock. I think it'll be over 75 for Burns. 91% of the fans going with Gilbert Burns to get the win. I have Gilbert Burns in this one, and my reasoning on this one is if you look at Neil Magny in just those last three fights, and you can kind of forget the fight that he had against Shavkat just a little in this respect. Really close fight against Max Griffin, who dropped some early. Didn't respond to the shots all that well as that fight went on. Didn't respond well against Shavkat. Somehow submitted Daniel Rodriguez, but in that fight, didn't respond well to the pressure and the shots. And when he would get hit, it was... I don't know if he was wobbled, but he just... He didn't look all that great in those exchanges. Gilbert Burns could get hit by some of those long-range exactly. shots trying to close the gap. But I like Burns to set up a lot with the hands to then possibly get the takedown. Or maybe even drop Magny like... Burns is able to do against Damian Maya. There's the the common opponent between. No, I agree 100. Again, I do think some of those straight shots can catch Gilbert Burns on the way in, and like you brought up with the Dan Hooker fight. Now the difference is Gilbert Burns at 155 was a lot less durable than he is at 170. I think he's shown a pretty good chin at 170. But if Neil Magny can catch him on the in betweens, catch him as he's coming in, he could have success. The difference is. Magny doesn't have anywhere near the power that Dan Hooker has. I would say kind of pound for pound, if you will. And Gilbert Burns has decent cardio, I would say, in a three-round atmosphere. Is the heavier-handed fighter between these two. Throws a higher variety of strikes. And I think if it does get on the mat, not to discount Neil Magny's grappling, because I don't think he's a poor grappler at all. It's just you're, like anybody in the world's going to have a hard time with Gilbert Burns on the mat. So I think Gilbert Burns is going to win this fight, but I'll say this. I think it's going to be closer than the odds do suggest. I think Gilbert Burns is really going to have to work for this one. Both of us going with Gilbert Zerino. Burns in the matchup. Title fights up at the top. Figueredo taking on Moreno. Teixeira taking on Sweet Dreams. Jamal Hill, you're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's get, get into it. it. The fourth installment of the quadrilogy coming up this weekend. UFC 283, the co-main event for the unification of the UFC's flyweight belt. We have Devison Figueredo taking on Brandon Moreno and in the last four fights for these two guys. Figueredo beats Alex Perez. Takes a short notice fight against Brandon Moreno. In that fight, kicks him right in the cup. Loses a point. It ends up as a draw at the end. 
That that was that was a fight in the night, brother. One of the great fights of the year. The next fight, performance bonus win for Devison Figueredo, and the third fight between these two guys, the fourth fight for Devison Figueredo. It was again a fight of the night, and it was a very very interesting one. If you go back and you have a look at it now, Matt, for Brandon Moreno, his last four fights: Figueredo, 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 Kai Kara France. What? That was for the interim belt. So you'll see Brandon Moreno wearing a belt around his shoulder in that graphic. He's the interim champion. They're going to unify them. And for Moreno, a little bit of step outside from fighting the same guy all the time. I he know. gets to fight Kai Kara France. And I know you know what you meant to say, but Moreno's yeah. Moreno, the one Moreno submitted Figueredo, exactly. and then in their third fight, Figueredo got the win, and he got it with that fight of the night. But Matt, the fight that Brandon Moreno had his last time out, we're going to talk all about the gym changes for both of these guys. Not just for exactly. Moreno, but for both of these guys. For Moreno's last time out against Kai Kara France, I, I went back and I looked at the judges' scorecards before the third round. Montavo had it tied 19-19. <laughs> Judge Douglas Crosby had it 20-18 for Kai Kara France, and Sal D'Amato had it 2018 for Brandon Moreno, but he withstood a little bit of adversity in that fight against Kai Kara France. It wasn't just... I thought Kai was winning the early parts of that. I don't exactly yeah. remember what my scorecard was. I don't judge fights as I'm watching them, guys. You know why? Because I'm on my phone sometimes. I look away. Like, I'm not there. That's why I get so up in arms about people who complain about judging. I just don't get it. We're not there. But with Brandon Moreno, I thought he made a really good account of himself in their first fight, and there were a lot of question marks. Devison brought these up himself, and I thought it was really interesting. He was like, hey, the weight cut to 125 is really hard on me. You know what I just did four weeks before this fight? I just had another really bad weight cut. Like you brought up, he still won three of the five rounds. I know he committed a foul, and the foul could have affected Brandon Moreno. I get how all this works, but... I think for Figueredo, there were enough excuses in that first fight to give you more confidence in Figueredo going into the second. And that's why I was supremely surprised with how good Brandon Moreno looked. He really seemed like he focused on speed in that fight. And I think that's the big key between these two guys. And I'm going to bring that up more uh, when I speak about the third fight as well. When Moreno focused more about just getting to the target and getting out of the way, he was having a ton of success. And he was able to frustrate Figueredo and make him fight in a more uncharacteristic manner. And when I can't sleep at night, I watch a lot of boxing videos. And it kind of reminded me when Sugar Leonard fought Roberto Duran the second time. He was elusive. He made him chase after him, which is what he's going to do anyways. But if you can make him emotional, make him fight outside of what his skill set is, you can have success. And I thought Moreno was doing a great job with his speed in the second fight. We just didn't really see it the third time around. I really thought Moreno was going to be able to build off the success he had going from their second fight to their first fight. But if anything... He seemed to stand in the pocket for that half second too long, and Devison Figueredo made him pay for it. He landed clean shots. And that's the thing, and it kind of followed him a little bit the start of the fight against Kai Kara France, and then <laughs> as it built, the second round, he was back into it. The third round, well, that's when he landed that body shot, and he ended up winning the belt back. And for Figueredo, this is where the camp change kind of comes into play. He goes to fight ready, he has the belt, and for this fight, he's had all of this time off and there is an interim belt on the line or there was during his absence. He goes back to Team Academy of Figueredo and we've seen fighters kind of gravitate to that gym. You have Zara Farron who's on this card. Priscilla Cachueta was at that gym for a little bit. And now she's training at MMA Masters. But it'll be interesting to see what the game plan is going to look like from a Figueredo perspective, but also from a Moreno perspective. Because for this fight, it was Glory MMA and then everything Raisins. happened 
And then he's at Fortis MMA in the UFC PI. And he's got guys from Entram Gym training with him. So he's kind of been all over the place getting ready for a fight like this. And it seems like from his Instagram, Coach Saif Saud has been with him the, the corner. He's, uh, so Saif Saud has been with Brandon Moreno for the last five weeks. And he has made the trip to Extreme Couture. He did a whole interview with Brad Akimoto. I highly recommend you go watch it. Saif Saud is a really smart guy. It's really interesting to break. Uh, he has a breakdown show, I believe, yeah, on Fight UFC, Pass. So, yep. Yeah, but Saif Saud is a really intelligent guy. And I think this gym change will be interesting. Because Brandon Moreno, I think his biggest asset is his fight IQ. Like Brandon Moreno can think about a thousand things inside of a fight that just the average viewer can't. And I've said this before: if fights didn't like end by judges' scorecards, Brandon Moreno would never lose. Like his cardio truly is one of one. There's like. Nick Diaz had the famous saying, I didn't lose, I just ran out of time. Like, Brandon Moreno is very much in that camp, too. Now, if Pantoja ends up fighting him, we'll see if that's the case, too. It's just, every single time we break this fight down, because we've done it a number of times, it just keeps on coming back to this. Are we going to get the best version of Figueredo, and are we going to get the best version of Moreno? Because if we get the best version of both guys, this sounds wild, but they could very well fight to a draw. Like, that's how evenly matched they are. Now, I know, you know, the losing a point and all that's a little extreme, but you get the idea. That's just how closely matched these two guys are. I will say this, though. If Brandon Moreno fights like the guy we saw in the second fight... That's the best version of either fighter we've seen out of all six of them. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Like, we've seen three versions of both these guys. The second version of Brandon Moreno is the best fighter I've seen out of all of them. And I think if he can recapture sort of that speed mindset of, hey, I'm not going in there to brawl with a guy like Figueredo. Because Moreno does have great boxing technique, and that's almost to his detriment. Like, he realizes how good of a tactician he is, so he'll be willing to get into a brawl. The problem is, when Figueredo hits you one time, he's going to be able to erase a lot of the volume that you've been able to build now, up. every time that Figueredo fights, the weight's going to be an issue. His first exactly. title fight, his first opportunity for UFC gold, I you had... It. Oh, boy. Henry Cejudo moves up to Bantamweight. Figueredo takes on Joe B. And in that fight, he misses weight. He wins the fight. And then he goes out there and fights Joe B again. He wins the fight. And poor Joe B just has to fight. These two fights were all. Askar Askarov. And then he retired. And it was very, very sad. But when we have a look at this one from the fans' perspective, YouTube community tab on this one. Out of the votes, 53% going Brandon Moreno. Matthew says, I predict a no contest. These guys are destined to become 1-1-1 one, one, and one with I a no like contest it. and have every outcome possible. Uh, Kingdom says, not sure, but Craig Walker is going to be a banger. Uh, another, you know, point deduction. Air Cote Moreno was on his way to losing to Kai Care France before the liver kick, so I guess Figueredo once again. Joshua Smith says, Figgy by knockout this time. And Hammy says, hard to pick against Brazilian fighters in Brazil. You know how UFC judges are. You never know how they're going to be. But Matt, when it does come down to this fight, I don't know what Figueredo is going to look like at 35. With the time away, yeah. I expect he's going to look pretty good. And I would think in Brazil, the weight cut, hopefully going to kind of suit him a little bit better than traveling across the world to the States to take a fight like this. And for Moreno, I'm eager to see what kind of a game plan we get because you kind of split camps all over the place. Saifsud is definitely a great coach. And I'm eager awesome. to see how they gel between rounds. If obviously we make it between I think rounds. the vibes would be pretty good between them. I got to be honest. Yeah, I mean, you got one guy that out of those thousand thoughts, I'm sure 995 of them are about Legos. fights. And the other five yeah. are split between Legos and Pop Funkos. But for Brandon Moreno, again, the boxing, when it comes down to it for me, I love the kicks out of Figueredo. And obviously, if he's going to mix some of his stance switches in with his, his uh, what would you call it? He just gives you if it so goes many different level looks. I'm going to pick Brandon Moreno easily. Well, I, I do love what you get out of Figueredo, and obviously you like the power that he has in a matchup like this, but in the fourth fight, Matt, what's your pick? 
Okay, I'm going to pick Brandon Moreno, but I'm going to openly say this right now. You're going to have to tune in for question mark kicks because this fight more than any other on the card comes down to how good or poorly these guys look on the scales. Because I know you bring it up, Figueredo doesn't have a long distance of travel, but he is 35 years old, fighting in a weight class that isn't very good to people in their mid-30s, especially with the weight cut. So I'm ever so slightly going to pick Brandon Moreno, but these guys are fighting for a fourth time. It's not like one is all that much better than the other one. Like, these are as closely matched up championship caliber fighters as you you have in all of the UFC, regardless of weight classes. I'm so excited to watch this fight for the fourth time. Should be a great fight. We're in disagreement. I do have Devison Figueredo in this one, but I think it's going to be an amazing oh, pairing, and more so than any. We want to hear from you down below. Hit up that comment section. Let us know who you have in the fourth fight between Figueredo and Moreno. A big-time light heavyweight title fight in the main event. Glover Teixeira taking on Sweet Dreams Jamal Hill. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get, get into it. it. Thanks so much for joining in. UFC 283 main event. Craig Allen, one half your host to do it. Matt Allen as well. Matt Allen FNP. Craig Allen FNP at Fight Night Picks. The main event that the UFC brass put together on somewhat a short notice. They were not impressed by the main event at UFC 282. Blahovich versus Ankalaev. It ends in a draw. So Dana White and the boys get together behind the scenes. And then at the press conference, they say, hey... Teixeira versus Hill on short notice. That's the main event. That's for the vacant belt. Screw it. We'll do it live. And ultimately, the loser out of all of this is a guy that's now training with Jamal Hill. They were supposed to fight Anthony Lionheart Smith. He was supposed to fight Hill. And Teixeira was just on the sidelines. He was a coach of a world champ. Just hanging out. Teixeira MMA and fitness. But for Glover Teixeira, we know the storybook career at this point. 19-7 and in the UFC. Had a title shot in 2014 against John Jones. He did not get the win back then at UFC 172. All the sc judges scored at 50-45. But he built himself back up. He beat Jan Blahovic. He submitted him. That was wild. He then went on to have a fight of the year last year against Yuri Prohoshka and got submitted in the 11th hour in the 5th round. Tashir's career has been wild, but for Jamal Hill, can you believe it? He's only the second fighter off Dana White's Contender Series to get a title shot. Alex Perez, the first against Devinson Figueredo, and now all of a sudden Jamal Hill getting this opportunity, and Hill only 5-1 and one with a no contest in the UFC at this point. Uh, Jamal Hill has been one of the more surprising Dana White Contender Series alumni, if you will, to make it into the UFC and have long-term success. And I know Sean O'Malley's another fighter, probably the more popular of the two, I would say. But Jamal Hill has had a very impressive UFC tenure up until this point. And the thing that I've always really liked out of Jamal Hill, other than the Paul Craig fight, which I remember we brought it up a lot. We were kind of joking about it, like, hey, I hope he really doesn't mean all those things he's saying about his jiu-jitsu. Training at Black Line Jiu-Jitsu. And then, of course, he gets submitted. But for the most part, Jamal Hill does get better fight in and fight out. He has the same foundation I would say, but he does add little wrinkles to his game, especially with his striking, that I do really enjoy. But for me, this fight breakdown just comes down to how much Glover Teixeira gave in his last fight. Like, I was talking to you about this last week. Really like some old boxing videos. That's what they say when Joe Frazier fought Muhammad Ali the first time. It was, hey, great fight back and forth, but it just took so much out of both those guys that they were never the same after. Yuri hurt his shoulder, so we don't really know what he looks like now. But the fact that Glover Teixeira is now now 43 years old there's some miles on that odometer and he stacked up a lot he went on a long road trip the last time out too I just don't know how many more fights like that Glover Teixeira can get into and still be durable to the level that he's at because do I think Glover can get on top of Jamal Hill and ground him out without a doubt Glover Teixeira is one of the best offensive grapplers we've seen north of like the middleweight division but on the flip side 
Is Jamal Hill explosive enough to hurt Glover to share with a lot of the strikes that he throws? Definitely. I don't doubt that whatsoever. I think it's going to be interesting. Has Hall made enough improvements at this stage of his career to kind of get over his own cockiness, if you will, and just fight as the best version of himself? Or can he fall into some of those traps against a guy like Glover? Look at the last three fights that Jamal's, Jamal Hill has had off of that loss to Paul Craig where he got baited in, he gets submitted, he pops his arm, and it's really awkward if you go and just the promo that they had leading into UFC 283 where they have Jamal Hill kind of dubbed over a lot of shots where it's like, I, I, I'll never give up and I'll never break. Well, you gave up because you broke against Paul wow. Craig. So it's kind of broke. He kinda, didn't break. It's kind of awkward when they do stuff like that. But if you look at it, performance bonus over Mr. Jimmy Croup. Performance bonus over Johnny Walker. That kind of highlight, real silly, cartoony knockout that he had. And then he gets a bonus and he wins in the fourth round against Thiago Santos. Now, positives in that fight? A lot of negatives in that fight as well. And the same thing can be said for Teixeira. Again, such a gritty performance. but he, It's its like that old WWE line that they used to do on those DVDs that we had growing up where they were like, these guys leave their bodies on the line. Leave this to the professionals. That's what Glover Teixeira did in his last fight. Oh, without a doubt. Now, here's the problem that I do have based on Glover Teixeira and his last fight and where he is in his career. Yuri's not a better grappler than Glover. Like, Glover just took a lot of damage. Yeah, no and hook, got rear naked yeah, like, That's not like his jiu-jitsu's better. That's like, I don't have a lot more left to give. And if that's the case, you're 43 fighting a younger guy now. And again, I think the skill set of Teixeira can offer the skill set of Jamal Hill a lot of trouble. If anything, it's the polar op is opposite of it and should offer him a lot of trouble. It's just Glover fights in the pocket a lot. And yes, he could have success in that pocket. He has great overhands. His left hook is phenomenal. Watch the Rashad Evans fight if you want to see a really nice left hook. All of that pocket fighting, though, means he's going to get hit at a certain point. And I, you are right. There's some positives and negatives to take from Hill's performance against Tiago Santos. But I said this earlier, and I'm going to stick by it. If you want to disagree with me, feel free to. Tiago Santos looked great against John Jones, but blew both of his knees out. Took a long time off and then came back. He looked like a shell of himself when he first came back. And I know he didn't have a lot of wins after the knee injuries. But I did feel like he was getting better as we saw him progress. Yeah, and I, I know, again, the fighter that we saw against Jamal Hill isn't the same fighter we saw against, like, Anthony Smith at middleweight. But I did think that that version of Tiago Santos was a good test for Hill. He hit him with clean shots. He really made him dig deep and go late in the fight. And that was the good thing about that. Hill can carry his power late. And that was a question mark that I did and have. And there's things to take from both of these guys' performances against Santos. Teixeira got hit by some really, really big shots. I don't know how he made it through there. Santos kind of wanted to grapple, maybe. Maybe, and then Teixeira took him down to that place and he ended up getting the win. And for Jamal Hill, he fought wrestler Tiago Santos. And in that fight, he struggled to get Santos off of him. But then at the point where he was able to do it as the fight wore on, Hill was able to get that win. So I love what I saw because Hill... Five-round fight, new atmosphere in certain respects, especially going to that fourth and he round. he tested, too. Yeah, and he still had that resolve. It's just, if Glover Teixeira was at 100% and he was 33, I'd pick Teixeira to win. Again, Teixeira, be a big under the UFC banner, 19-7, and seven, he debuted in WEC. That counts to that record in 2002. He beat Sokaju in WEC in 2006, so it's wild to see that. Does this matter at all? It's just a point that I just thought of, so I want to get it out there. The fact that a 43-year-old, in all reality, is only getting like a month camp. Does it take your body a little bit longer to kind of get in fight shape when you are I, at that age? Again, I'm not I, that old. I don't know the answer to it. I just will be curious to see if that's at least a talking point going into the fight. I think it's more of like, can he cut the weight? Like, if you do look at Glover Teixeira, I watch his Instagram stories every now and again. The last time I did, I screenshotted it and sent it to people. He was sitting in a cold plunge in his backyard talking just about life. And then he was like, oh... 
look at the crows and he just started I feel talking like I'd about be great friends with Glover crows in the trees but i do expect to share it to share mma and fitness a lot it was controversial our pick for mma gym of the year we picked him even though he lost his belt but he coached Pereira yeah. to a win it was just wild to see kind of where that gym's gone and now it's a destination gym that people travel to connecticut to train with glover and the rest at that gym so for me again the skill sets are all there with exactly. glover it's just how is that odometer going to look like in a fight like this against a guy like Jamal Hill? We threw it out there to you in the YouTube community tab. Almost a 1,000 total votes, 57%. Going with Glover to get the win over Hill. But Matt, I'm really eager to see some of these comments that are out there. Uh, Eli Rivas wrote us a paragraph. Eli, I apologize. I, I just, appreciate it, though. I don't have the time. Artem MMA saying, if Santos can take Hill down six times, so can Glover. Uh, then talking about Luan Lacerda. Bill is saying, I think Glover is built to beat a fighter like Hill. Hill's a lights-out striker, but a ground game that's not on Glover's level. Glover's going to drop him at some point, whether it be faked or real. Well, we'll see how that one happens. King saying, sneaky feeling that the old dog has one more title run in him. And Mark saying, Hill by TKO. So, Matt... We know how Chris Jamal Hill's hands are, and we it's knew that too. coming in. I mean, Southpaw, Tricky, like, remember his fight against Darko Stuzic? Remember his fight against Popak over on Dana White's Contender Series? Very interesting. It's a bit of a cheap comp, but it is true. Jamal Hill kind of is that OSP 2.0 with the way that he strikes. He has long range. He has far better hands than OSP. OSP would really have to bait guys into his boxing, use his kicks a lot more at long range, whereas Jamal Hill could crowd you with his boxing and then open up with his kicks as a result. And again... I like the skill set that Jamal Hill has, but this is my big problem. I would have loved to see Glover versus Jan, because A, we already know what we know about those guys, and Ankolaev against Hill, I think, would have taught us enough about both those fighters to help us in a prediction to see uh, the winner of that go up against a Glover or a Jan or even a Yuri, depending on what his injury is like. For all those reasons, and for a few of the unknowns with Jamal Hill, I'm actually going to go with Glover. I feel like a lot of this video has been me uh, trying to boost up Jamal Hill and throw a lot of red flags up with Glover. But again, we talked about the skill sets. The skill set of Glover is one that Jamal Hill's style normally does struggle with. If Jamal Hill knocks him out in the first round, I wouldn't be surprised by that whatsoever. Like, I'm openly admitting that that is a very real possibility. I just think at this stage of his career, Jamal Hill has to fight a couple more guys in the top five, not just go from seven to, like, the best fighter in the division. I, if, it's a big if, step. If you told me two or three years ago that we'd be getting a title fight to start a year between Glover Teixeira and Jamal Hill at 205 pounds... I would have laughed and walked the other way. I mean, I would have thought John Jones would have been there. Maybe not till the not end of time because there were some chinks in the armor at the end. And now he's moving up to heavyweight and Francis Ngannou. Does he go to the PFL? I don't know. Tiago Santos did. So we'll see what happens. But Matt, I agree with you in this one. And I have Glover Teixeira. I think it's such a fun fight. And it's such a fun week because, again, six debuting fighters on this card. Two making their second times out on the main card. Paul Craig, Johnny Walker, Clash of Styles. You have a great fighter, an all-time fighter, and Jessica Andrade taking on Lauren Murphy. I mean, hey, how can you not get excited for these two title fights up at the top? They're so much fun. And you can't forget about Gilbert Burns taking on Neil Magny. I know you're really excited about this one. Just before we go, maybe one prospect that you're really looking forward to seeing on this card. I'm going to shout out both of them. The Bonfim brothers have a huge weekend ahead of them. And I know it's weird when there are siblings in the UFC who have different levels of success. We have seen that on multiple occasions now. But I think these are two very skilled and very exciting prospects. So I want to give a little bit of shine to both those guys. Because I feel like on Contender Series, it was B. Joe Pfeiffer and a lot of other people got forgot along the way. I guess Bo Nickel's a big name. But a lot of people did get forgotten. And I feel like the Bonfim brothers are in that forgotten boat. Can't wait for this one. I love the fact that the Bonfim brothers are on the card. So 
many great fights to look forward to. Question mark kicks, the sidekick coming up on Saturday. Make sure you subscribe so you know when these videos drop. And last weekend we had a main event swap out after we dropped the video. So you're going to want to make sure you tune in with Fight Night exactly. Picks. Keep it locked in and as we always say, let's get, get into it. it.